Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is August the 14th, 2015. This is episode 1625, and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, it is time for your questions for the expert council. And a couple segments by me, I'm in the mood to get you guys a little bit motivated today. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a, some words of advice about business and share to you, for you, uh, share with you a letter that came to me yesterday from a company called Honey Locust Home, uh, and a new business they've started and what they've been able to do in a relatively short period of time. And hopefully that motivates you to be creative and, and consider doing something for yourself. Uh, John Pugliano is going to take a question today on independent contracting versus being an employee. There's a lot of variables uh, where you can take advantage of things beyond uh, just starting a business from scratch. There's a lot of ways you can improve your financial life. And that's a big part of what we teach here at the Survival Podcast. Um, a lot of people that talk about preparedness and survivalism, they talk about one thing, gloom and doom, the end of the world, the zombies marching, uh, the total collapse of the country, the economy and everything, and nothing being left, and everything being like uh, the TV show revolution or something like that. Here's a, a way to understand that, that mentality. Uh, bullshit. Okay, that's that's not how breakdowns in society work. There, there, there's a fact that nature abhors a vacuum. Uh, as long as there's people around, there'll be some sort of an economy, and people that know how to survive in this economy may be able to adapt to new economies. But if you can't survive in this one, which is Pretty easy to do. You ain't going to adapt to the next one. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. We're going to talk about a bunch of stuff today. Brian Black's going to be on about concealed carry today. Uh, Darby Simpson on pastured pork. Nick Ferguson on fall planning. Again, John Pugliano on independent contracting. Michael Jordan on the actual work of beekeeping. Erica Strauss on what to do with sun-dried tomatoes as far as how to store them. Uh, Gary Collins is going to discuss for you if you have to make a decision between a dairy product made with raw milk versus organic, uh, whether it be better off with raw milk that's non-organic or organic that's pasteurized milk. Uh, ben Falk on the cultivation of locust. Keith Snow on l cooking lamb. And again, me with some motivational stuff and some updates on some really, really cool things coming. Before we get to all that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you and help make sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, BulkAmmo.com. When I need ammo and I want it in bulk, I go to BulkAmmo.com. Why? Because the name says what you're going to get. Ammo in bulk at great prices with lightning fast shipping. How fast is their shipping? It's almost like this. I've placed my order. I go on about my day and I hear, gee, who's that? It's the postman with my ammo. How did that happen? It's not quite that fast, but it feels that fast. I think for most of us to think, you know what I should do? I should run out to the you know sporting goods store or whatever and, and bulk up on ammo this week. By the time you got around to doing it, it could be sitting on your doorstep. That's how quick their shipping is. They have all of the common cal calibers, great pricing, excellent service, and they're a long-term sponsor. They've been with us for, I think, four years now. So when you need ammo and you need it in bulk, Get on over to Bulk Ammo. Remember, ammo is one of the three components to the, the, the triangle of gun operator effectiveness. You've got to have the weapon, 
You go to a gunfight without a gun, you got a problem. You, the operator, needs training. But even with a good operator and a good firearm, without the ammo, man, that's the terminal tackle, as we say in fishing. You've got to have the ammo to put food on the table, to protect life and property, and to train effectively. Check out BulkAmmo.com today. And remember, they do do a discount for members of the Support Brigade. Just take the benefits section of your MSB for more information on that. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Sawtooth Tactical. You'll find them over at sawtac.com. You'll get all the stuff you need to live that tactical lifestyle if you get on over to Sawtac. Veteran-owned, veteran-operated, and nestled in the wilderness of the Sawtooth Mountains. That's why they call them Sawtac. And when I say everything, I mean everything from the awesome manly titanium spork, Maxpedition bags, Magpul magazines, SOE tactical gear, and everything else you can think of. If it's tactical, they have it at Sawtooth Tactical. Remember the website again, www.sawtac.com. And they also do do a discount for members of the support brigade. So if you're a member and you're going to get some tactical material from Sawtac, Get into your MSB account, click on Benefits, and look up SawTac and get that discount. Again, a veteran-owned, veteran-operated company nestled in the Sawtooth Wilderness of Idaho, SawTac.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the episode 1625, so the year 1625. I have for you global cooling, monster storms, and the coming Maunder Minimum. We also have water relief, globular salt is discovered, And we have the slide rule and the old school mystique. I'm going to read Global Cooling, uh, Monster Storms, and the Coming Monitor Minimum. We are currently midway through the Little Ice Age, and unusually strong storms are the rule now. The pilgrims have logged over 20-foot tide in New Plymouth due to a major storm. Back in England, the Thames has risen to such a height that the seawall at Kent has collapsed. Essex and Lincolnshire have, are inundated. Take note, this is not normal flooding that might torment the average yeoman or minor nobleman. This is record-breaking flooding. The bad weather is a terrible omen for the future. Speaking of bad omens, King James I has died and his son Charles I has taken the throne of Great Britain. But it's not as if England has been hit by the plague too. Oh wait, over 68,000 die of the plague this year, most in London itself. Bad times are not over yet. Um, My take by Alex Shrugged, who puts these together for us at tspwiki.com. The tracking of sunspots in the 1600s was led by a husband and wife team, Anne and Walter Maunder. Their observation noted the, noted the reduction in the number of sunspots in 1645. Today it is known as the Maunder Minimum, and it lasted for over 70 years. The longest minimum in recorded history. At the same time, there was a sudden drop in global temperatures, more than it had already dropped for the Little Ice Age, But does a reduction in sunspots predict a drop in temperature? In modern day, we're experiencing a solar minimum. I notice lower than normal temperatures, but I'm not seeing convincing case for sunspots causing a change in temperature. I have lived long enough to experience global cooling, global warming, and now global climate change. Scientists have not convinced me that any of these things are caused by man. They have not convinced me their so-called solutions would actually fix the problem, even if they were caused by man. Their hands are out, demanding more funding. I feel like someone being forced to pay for the rope used in my own hanging. I feel much the same way. Where I disagree is sunspots. I think that there is a pretty good correlation to global temperatures and a reduction in sunspot uh, activity. Um, if you want to say it's anecdotal evidence, it's pretty consistent anecdotal evidence. Um, I do recommend the YouTube channel Suspicious Observers. 
uh, where they have this idea, this crazy idea, that global temperatures are more affected by the sun than CO2. I mean, that the sun is the source of all heat, radiation, etc., and it might have an effect on the temperature of the planet. But this is where Alex and I really do agree. I, I think it's interesting that most people that are just devout, true believers in you know, global warming, and still, even though science has changed that word because it doesn't quite fit anymore, that are just addicted to it, I, I, they come in two classifications. There are people that are middle-aged and about my age, Alex's age, that kind of age group, but never paid attention to jack shit when they were kids. Right? They became concerned citizens in their 30s or something like that, and they just missed the whole 70s and 80s with the global cooling that, or, yeah, global cooling and, you know, they, the, the line is today that was never really a thing. There was a few, you know, crazy people that thought that was the case. It wasn't a thing. It was a thing. There was no internet back then, so there's not pages and pages and pages and pages of crap about it. But if you were a kid paying attention in the 70s and 80s and watched the nightly news, it was on an awful lot, and it was the great catastrophe that was coming. It only changed in the 90s when the, when the temperature started to warm, and it didn't fit the dialogue anymore. And the same people were pushing it. And the same people were requiring a solution, and we had to act now, or there would be ice sheets back into the northern climate. Um, and then, you know, all of a sudden it changed, and now there's not quite the global warming everybody says, and every once in a while they try to make a case that it's still there, but when you actually look at the numbers, it's not. And when you start looking at the graphs, you realize if you play with Excel, you can make graphs do all kinds of things, but we're talking tenths of a degree up and down here. And then here's the big thing, guys. Why are we supposed to be afraid of global warming? Rising seas, bigger floods, yeah? Uh, that's what happened during global cooling in the 1600s. Here's what I think. I think that we do an awful lot to damage the environment of this planet. And I think fossil fuels and the way that they're extracted and refined and the waste products that we produce from them are a huge part of that. I, I, I don't dispute that at all. But I don't think the air you exhale and I exhale is the problem. I think it's all the pollution that we actually do create. And I think it's interesting that no one's talking about that. The only thing brought up in this environmental debate on any consistent level is the air you exhale. Why? When I believe if we actually discussed real pollution that people could really measure and see and see the results of, that there'd be a majority behind doing something about it. Because this is supposed to be a divisive issue because it's not about fixing any problems. My take by Jack Spiergel. Anyway, and history seems to support that. Uh, with that knocked out, I want to remind you guys about the Member Support Brigade. If you uh, want to help support the show and the work we do, you can become a member and you can get discounts on a lot of great stuff. Uh, just get on over to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members for more information there. Um, that's all I'll say about that today. Um, I do have some really interesting stuff to talk to you about before I bring our experts on today. I, I want to start out about creating business and why I think that's something that everybody out there should be considering doing. I, I know it's not right for everybody. I, I know that it's just not the thing that everybody wants to do or is going to do, and it requires a lot of commitment and a lot of dedication, a lot of effort, and results are not guaranteed, and, and it's not for everyone. 
So I know sometimes when I talk about, you know, going into a business and I like go into a niche and say, like, here's a good place to go into business. One of the big objections I hear is, well, what if everybody did that? It would saturate the market or something like that. Well, my response is always, yeah, don't worry about it. Not everybody's going to do it. It's just not going to happen. You know, that, that, that's the least of your worries. If you think you can make a go of this and it's something you're excited about and want to do, go for it because so few people are going to, it's not going to matter. Especially on a small business scale where you're selling, serving local markets, etc. Um, and then the other side of that is don't make that your excuse. If, instead of making an excuse for it, find what does move you, what you do have passion for, what you do believe you can, can make happen, the, the niche and the need in the market that you do see. Uh, this makes sense to me. Excuses don't make any sense to me at all. A, a, a reason makes sense to me. A reason is I just don't want a business. Okay, fine. Uh, I don't want the risk. I don't have the time. I don't have the commitment. It's not going to happen. I don't want to do it. That's fine. But 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 don't make excuses. I mean, the big answer, the big response to that, if it's not for you, is I don't want to do it. Not well. It's too hard. Well, it's not too hard. It's actually not hard at all if you want it. And yesterday I was having kind of a crappy day. I'm dealing with a contractor to do my pond right now that can't return a phone call, so that's irritating me. Um, I, I ripped my neck the other day picking up a, a sack of compost. Uh, not real bad or anything. I mean, I'm almost over it already, but yesterday it was really aching me to the point where it's hard to concentrate, that kind of thing. Um, and then I had one of those days where everything goes wrong. Like you spill your coffee twice, once on my desk across my Mac, You know, setting up the sprinklers, one of them malfunctions and has to be repaired. It's hot as blazes out, trying to get things done. Had to double schedule interviews last week to get Mike's interview on yesterday, so I didn't do the, 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 the call-in show. I mean, it was just like stacking on, stacking on, stacking on. Well, the mail shows up, and there's this envelope that's clearly got some stuff in it, like a big envelope, and uh, something hard in there. Well, maybe it's a couple big bars of silver, but it didn't feel heavy enough, so I opened it up. And it was from a company called Honey Locust Home. Uh, and I have their letterhead right here in front of me, and it says, Create, Grown, Inspire. I like that. And it was three bars of soap from their company and a letter. And here's what the letter said. Jack, I wanted to thank you, write you and thank you for the inspiration you provided to my wife and I in starting our own business, Honey Locust Home. We're early in the process and have a long way to go in reaching our ultimate goal of supporting our family and creating a legacy for our children, but we are on our way. You and your work through TSP helped us in overcoming our biggest challenge and just getting started. Both my wife and I have dreams and goals beyond soap making, including my goal to obtain a PDC in the next year. We started where we could, and now our little part-time soap business is starting to flourish as we see opportunity all around us. With a whole lot of hustle, we now have recurring, uh, reoccurring uh, standing orders from two local bed and breakfasts for custom soap. We have provided wedding favors in the form of custom soap for weddings. This summer, and our local farmer's market that we helped establish now generates average sales of $200 weekly. I want to pause there and just explain some of what you're seeing here. Um, we started where we could. That is like a picture in a way. Where you say a picture's worth a thousand words. Those few words are worth 10,000 words. We started where we could. They've established reoccurring standard orders. That's so important early on in a business. They got creative and went into bed and breakfast and doing custom soaps for bed and breakfast. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. It's chump change for the bed and breakfast. But it's such a value add to their customers. And it's something that just can't be easily replaced. Once you're in there, unless you screw up, you got to be blown out with dynamite. Okay? And then 
this summer and our local farmer's market that we helped establish. Well, I don't have a farmer's market to sell out, so they didn't either, so they helped create one, so they had a place to do business. These are people that want it. Right now, they generate average sales of $200 a week. That's $800 a month. They started the business this year. Um, I've included some samples of our fall line as we have had to increase soap production 500% to build inventory for all the fall craft shows and music festivals we have uh, committed to, as well as to keep up with current demand. That means we are up at 5 a.m. making soap before packing up to work uh, the farmer's market every Saturday while many of our friends and families are sleeping in. Jack, I know you will appreciate our new green monster soap made from our own comfrey and lightly scented with our own infused peppermint oil as well as healing tea tree oil. Many of our soaps include materials we either produce ourselves, such as comfrey plantain, bee balm, mint, lemon balm, or we source locally, such as our honey soap. We even have, offer an oatmeal stout soap made from my own homebrew Irish stout. Uh, you'd have, you would have received a bar. We're currently out of stock. I will have to send you a bar next time we offer it. I think you need to send me a bottle of beer, dude. The story of our soap generates a sale almost every time a would-be customer walks up to our booth, and that is another place we owe you some credit for. Anyway, thanks again, Jack. A like on Facebook would help us out. If you like the soap, uh, Josh and Mindy, listeners for over four years and MSB members, HoneyLocustHome.com. Great soap. Took a shower last night with the uh, comfrey soap, and I'll tell you why. Adding to my crappy day yesterday, apparently fire ants like to climb all over sunflowers this time of year when they're weeping sap, and I got about 150 fire ant bites on my arm, my back, and my neck yesterday, uh, though there's not much to see from it today thanks to some comfrey sap and this comfrey soap. Um, but I needed that yesterday. See, what I want you guys to understand is this is why I do this. It's not the only reason I do this. I mean, there's all kinds of things that you guys are out there doing, but this is one of the big things. This is why I do this show. When I hear from you guys, I've created a business. Uh, I planted 10 acres. Uh, I'm in the pastured poultry and pork business now. Uh, I, I have gotten this great new job and moved halfway around the, uh, across the country for more freedom and liberty. These things. I have my kids in homeschool now. I have formed a homeschool group so that parents that didn't think they can homeschool can homeschool. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I have this Kickstarter. I'm helping this family. I'm teaching preparedness in our church. I'm teaching preparedness, you know, at the gun range. I'm whatever. That's why I do this. That's why I do this. Yes, it's a way for me to make a living, and I am so blessed and so lucky that I can make a business work like this with a microphone. But if I'm not getting a result on the other end, if I'm not getting letters like this, then I'm not doing my freaking job. And when I get letters like this, you know what it is? A lot of you guys still have jobs, you get employee reviews, and you actually work for someone that gives a shit about you, the lucky ones, and you get that employee review from the boss that always seems busy, and you realize when you get that employee review, they're like, he's saying, you know what, I do value you. I do see what you do. I do appreciate you. I think you do a good job. What you do matters to me. Right? That's what these are like for me. And that came out of just a perfect day to get something like that. And when you're thinking about, do, do I, you know, do I, do I, because I hear people say, I don't want to waste your time or whatever. Do I send something like that? Please do. You know, even when I, I don't have time because I'm stressed out or whatever, my wife will take these things when I settle the hell down and she'll read these to me like she did yesterday. Turns my whole day around. And this, this is what I want. I want every single person out there that wants something to take a dadgone shot at it. 
to go make it happen. And again, it's not a business for everybody. But for those of you that it is a business, I'm going to try to do something to help you guys with that. Um, I have a coder working on this right now. We found a really great directory script for WordPress, and we're putting together a business directory that will be on the survivalpodcast.com that anybody out there with a business can enter their business and basically say, this is a directory for our community to do business with each other. Cost of being it is going to be free. Absolutely free. There will be some premium features where people that want to like uh, have some added enhanced features or whatever have a small fee annually, but it's so cheap compared to, say, advertising on my show. And it's an acknowledgement. I can't take every single person that comes to me into the MSB. I can't because I dilute the value to the other people that do the same thing and, and what have you. I, I want to keep adding to it. I, I'm assigning myself a crazy goal. Uh, my goal is in the next year to grow from 66 vendors to 100. To 100 quality vendors for MSB. And frankly, I think this, this directory is going to be one way that I can find you guys because... Um, what, what I need from a, a business that, that's hard a lot of times for a, a new company to show is a track record. Well, one of the great things about this directory is it's going to have a place for reviews. So this is going to be a community business directory. So you guys can do business with each other. And the community can develop a track record for the individual businesses. So not only will you know that ABC Company is part of the TSP community, but here's the other community business member, uh, community members who have done business with them, and here's their re the results. Here's how they're rated, um, and that directory should not take very long to be up. So that's coming, and I wanted you guys to know that because I want to empower as many people as possible to send me letters like this. I, I really do. I have been blessed with opportunities an incredible community built around me and just a inherent attitude to never accept good enough is good enough. There is something in some people that makes them entrepreneurs. And it's, it's not even all the time that they want to be an entrepreneur. They can't stand it any other way. It's a blessing and a curse and it, it, at the same time. And it, it's something that I have. And I can't give it to you, but if it's there, I can help you cultivate it. And make sure that instead of a curse, it is a blessing. That's, that's one of my big goals for this show. And I, I just want you guys to know how big a deal it is to be able to say, you know, we're, we're doing $200 a week in revenue. You know, a lot of people look at that and say, you know what, that's, yeah, minimum wage job. Okay, you make more money than that. Right? Uh, but what people don't understand is that's not, that's not job money. That's money you actually created. That's wealth that you're creating and you're building and you're off the ground. And that way when you go to the next company and say, hey, look, this is what we do. Uh, we would like to do business with you. And they say, who are you doing business with? You have an answer. It's getting that, that snowball rolling that's the big difficult thing to do. And once it's rolling... At times you think you're still pushing because it seems so hard because it's still taking so much effort and so much time. But what you don't realize is even if you were to stop pushing at that point, maybe it's not at a high speed, but that ball would still roll. When you get to things like this, you're getting there. It doesn't mean you can lay back and let it happen on its own. It takes 
dedication and work. I pour my heart and guts into this business every day. I've been doing it eight years. I'm not backing off. I'm not slowing down. But there's a momentum to it that doesn't make it necessarily easier to do the work. It makes it easier to have the success and the growth and the impact and easier to see that it's worth it. And that's where you are when you're, when you're getting there. I got an email recently from John Dowie. And it was just a real short email. He said, $650 in invoice in this week, baby. $650 in microgreens in a week. Started the microgreen part of his business this year. Think about that. Less than a year. You know, and he's doing duck eggs and quail eggs. And, you know, when I, when I hear stuff like that and realize, you know, so John had his little business that he had kind of started up with the duck eggs and the quail. And he's kind of getting that off the ground. And, and that was, you know, inspired by TSP. And then along comes Luke Callahan with the book on microgreens. John gets the book, reads the book, says, the hell with it, I'm going to do this, and just makes it happen. We have another guy named Roger, came up to, uh, to Perma Ethos and, and did some work up there for us. He's from southern Texas. Uh, and, um, you know, got into doing microgreens at Perma Ethos, got into a few little restaurants up there, but decided, hey, you know what, I can do this anywhere. Going back to south Texas, he's got his business rolling now. This is this is what's possible. For all of the heat that I give our country over our government and the way we're acting, there is so much opportunity for those that will work. So, so please consider doing something for yourself like this. Uh, next up, before I get to our first expert panel question, the first one's going to be for Brian Black. I do want to remind you guys, we do have this workshop coming up at TSP uh, Ranch, or Nine Mile Farm as we call it now. And it will be October 1 through the 3rd, and it's actually, most people are showing up September 30th to set up campsites or whatever, um, and it's going to be awesome. Uh, I put out a little post about it yesterday, and uh, basically I'm opening up registration for MSB members on Monday morning, and then anybody and everybody on Wednesday, if there's any seats left, I'm going to do 34 people, that's about as many as I can take, because when we have some people that have a few people with free seats and some other things and guest instructors and all. But let me just tell you what we're going to be teaching. Function stacking and homestead design. We're going to do an operational farm walkthrough where I'm going to explain to you exactly how we run our business and show you the infrastructure that's in place and explain to you how we get our customers and all of that stuff. Self-watering, stock tank, container garden construction. I'm going to show you how to do really high-value production in 18 square feet and have almost no maintenance. Uh, worm composting, that'll be brief and simple. Uh, we are going to be building from scratch a greenhouse. You can see how to do that and build a full-on awesome um, 8x12 greenhouse with automation built into it for under a 1000 bucks. How to do that, which can be part of a business. John Dowie's coming. He's doing the greenhouse construction setup. He's also doing three separate classes, four and a half hours of training on developing and growing microgreens. So that can be used for home production, or it can be used to start your own business. Um, we're doing fermented foods and dry canning. That'll just be a one-hour little workshop that I'm going to lead. We'll do some actual dry canning. We'll do some fermented foods. I'm going to have escabeche made in advance and maybe some sauerkraut made in advance, so we'll have that on the menu. Uh, John's getting some material to me to get a head start on the microgreen production. We'll be eating microgreens probably Saturday at the event as well. Uh, John Pugliano is coming. He's doing two sessions on investing in financial management so you can 
figure out how to make this stuff happen financially for yourself. Uh, we're doing a plant propagation workshop with Nick Ferguson, which will tell you how to save thousands of dollars by propagating your old plants in some very, very easy ways. Jason is coming, my, my bee mentor, to do about a two-hour class on honeybee management. We're going to talk about how we manage the property with ducks and, and, and handle the ducks like cattle, basically. We're going to have Q&A sessions. It looks like I figured out how to finagle into all this, actually making some biochar with a cone kiln. So we're going to make biochar. We're going to probably have live music. Dorothy's on a search to find someone to do that. If you know someone local that would be able to do live music for this event, let me know. Let me know. Somebody kind of folksy, country, kind of just cool for the campfire type thing. One guy and a guitar with good equipment, something like that. I'm really looking for someone to do that. Um, I think that would be a great way to kind of really enhance it. The food here when we do these things is fantastic. Barter blanket, community building, the people you're going to meet. I mean, a lot of these people that you hear from our community that are kicking ass and taking names and building businesses, they formed relationships and they formed skill sets at these events. Um, there's a brotherhood and a sisterhood among people that come here. Um, I know I'm going long today on my own when we're supposed to have the expert counsel on, but... I want as many people as possible to come to these events. I want as many of you guys that have been here to before to come back because it is like a homecoming. But I also want new people. I want new people to come here, get charged up, and go off and say, good enough isn't good enough. I deserve better. That, that's what I want. I want people to go home and say, good enough is not good enough. I deserve better. I deserve more because I'm willing to make it happen. I'm willing to work for it. I'm willing to do it. That's what I want. So please consider coming. And for those that can't get to the first one, we're doing another one the week of November 11th. That'll November, November 11th is Veterans Day. It's a Wednesday. I figure some people are off anyway. More details will come on that. But that's going to be really focused a lot on quail, quail egg production. We're going to do quail processing. We're going to cook quail and a lot of other stuff. Some of the stuff that's in this one and some brand new stuff you won't see here. We're going to do civo pasture uh, establishment using locust trees, which we're going to talk about today with Ben Falk in our West Pasture. Very simple, low-input way to do that. These are awesome. Get to one if you can. With that, let's get into our first question at 30 minutes. Wow, this will be a long show, but, um, man, I needed to say some of these things to you guys today because you can't imagine how important you guys are to me. Uh, Brian Black has a first question today because uh, Brian got back. Those of you guys that are in the expert council that wonder, how do I decide who goes first? First person to get their answer to me goes first. Second person goes second. Third person goes third. And the pikers go on a pikers list at the end. People that I didn't hear from this week. So starting off, Brian Black. Uh, this question comes from Jarrett. I need to buy a gun belt for concealed carry. I was wondering what type and brand is adjustable. I'm working at losing weight, so anything I buy today might not fit tomorrow. Additionally, I realize that I may gain some weight in the future. Thanks, Jarrett. What say you, Brian? Hey, TSP. This is Brian Black from ITS Tactical, and I'm answering a expert counsel question from Jarrett, who asked that I need to buy a gun belt for concealed carry. and was wondering what type of belt or brand is adjustable. He's working at losing weight, so anything he buys today may not fit him tomorrow. Additionally, he realizes that he may gain some weight back in the future. Uh, so, Jared, thanks for your question. Um, I do have a couple of recommendations on uh, belts that I prefer. Um, I've used a lot of belts over the years for concealed carry, and I keep coming back to the option um, of just a standard adjustable belt, so meaning, you know, the ones with the notches in them. So there's a couple that I recommend. 
Um, the first that I that I really like is a belt called the Liger Gun Belt from Max Edition. Um, it's kind of hit or miss on getting those, so sometimes they have them in stock, sometimes they don't. Um, just keep in mind that when you're ordering sizes for any of these belts, I recommend that you need to, you know, allow a little space on the uh, the belt for, for your concealed carry, uh, depending what method you carry, whether it's in the waistband or appendix, what have you. So uh, with the Liger gun belt, they come in a one and a quarter or one and a half inch width. Um, I use the one and a half inch width. I like the, the wider size. Um, and I also like them because they're made in the U.S. and they feature a, a metal a metal adjustable buckle. So again, it's got the different holes in it for the uh, the different waist sizes. I believe there's two above your waist size and two below, so it's definitely got some room uh, and flexibility there. Um, I like the Liger gun belt too because it's made of uh, a material called biothane which is basically a composite material. It's kind of a polyester, but what I like about it is it doesn't sag like traditional leather. Um, but another re- product I recommend that I've been using lately is the uh, Mean Gene Leather uh, Belt. Um, I've been using his Barbarian Belt, which features a cobra buckle for adjustment, but I like the fact that he's now got a version called the Victory Aegis Buck uh, Belt that he's uh, using the Let's see here, it's the Ares Gear Aegis Buckle, so I would definitely recommend that. That's kind of the traditional military-style adjustable buckle, but kind of made into a more modern-day bomb-proof um, application. So definitely check that out for Mean Gene Leather, too. So it is a leather belt, but it's adjustable through that buckle, which um, there's no holes necessarily for a pattern for adjustment. It's uh, actually all done through the sliding buckle. So definitely check those out. Um, I'll make sure I send Jack the links to both of these buckles so you can post them or belts so you can post them in the show notes. Um, I hope that helps. Um, one thing with the uh, the Mean Gene leather belts is they are made with a very thick leather, so they're probably double the thickness of the Maxpedition Liger belt, if not triple the thickness. So it's one thing to keep in mind when you're ordering that it is a fairly thick leather belt. But you don't get that sagging that I was talking about with traditional leather belts because it's so it's so thick. So something to uh, to keep in mind. Those are a couple options. I hope that helps. Um, thanks for the question and keep them coming. Remember to check out ITS for your daily dose of skill sets and resources to help you explore your world and prevail against all threats. www.itstactical.com. Thanks for the question. Good stuff from Brian Black, and this is a guy that's been carrying a long time, and because of the business that ITS is in, uh, not only just his, his fundamental tactical nerdiness where he tries everything on his own, but you know he's got company after company after company willing to send him samples of things. He's tried a ton of different options. So if he comes down on these two, those are good options. You can bet on that. I would like to throw in, though, and I, I've never actually um, used or seen or touched or held a mean jean leather belt, um, but it makes me think of another option you might have. I talk a lot about businesses uh, that come out of the TS community and, and doing business inside the TSP community, and there's a company called Lenwood Leather uh, run by a guy named Jason Davies, and he's been an MSB supporter for years. And uh, he was always on me about wanting to make me a belt and send me a belt. I'm like, I have lots of belts. I don't really care, whatever. Finally, I'm like, hey, here's my size. Send me a belt. He sends me this belt. You literally could beat somebody to death with this belt. Um, it is an incredibly great belt for, for carry because it's like Brian said. It doesn't sag. It doesn't give it all. There's actually a picture on Jason's site where he's got the belt you know, ringed and sitting on the ground, and he's standing on it on end, and it's holding him up. I mean... 
These are tough, amazing belts. So that would be another option. And MSB members, you guys get a discount. So I wanted to throw that in there. Next up today, this is for Darby Simpson. It says, uh, I want to get into raising a few uh, pasture pigs next year, three to five. What basic infrastructure do I need to put in place before I bring them in the spring? Uh, I'm a small part-time farmer in Jersey. I've been doing meat, chickens, and eggs for the last few years, as well as hay on about eight acres. I don't have much infrastructure in place. I do have two water lines, which are basically hoses to separate areas. I also have a small shed, but I'm more apt to build a portable structure for them. I run, if, a portable, if a portable hut, what style do you recommend? I also have electric netting. Do you recommend netting or strands uh, for pigs? I was also thinking of using strands. As far as pasture goes, I have nut and fruit trees in various stages of development, but most are just starting to bear. I do have some larger oaks and walnuts that are heavy bearers. Most of the pasture is mixed orchard grass. Is there any pasture improvements that I can make to help supplement the pig's nutrition? Thanks, Dave. Uh, Darby would be the man on this one. What say you, Darby? Hey, Jack, this is Darby Simpson calling in to answer Dave's question about uh, setting up some basic infrastructure so that he can get started with pasture pigs next year. And, uh, Dave, I'll tell you what, the, the first thing you're going to want to set up before you bring home some uh, little young wean pigs is an area to uh, train them in to electricity. And uh, kind of what we do here is we have a, a what we call a training corral, and it's a uh, small quarter-acre area that's built with high-tensile fence, and down low we've got the high-tensile wires on three-inch centers uh, so that it makes it really difficult for little pigs to slip out between those wires. Um, but what we actually do is inside of that training corral when we bring new pigs home is we set up some portable electric netting inside of this area and we actually train them to the netting and we do that for a couple of reasons one we want them to be trained uh, to the netting so we can use the netting and then once they're trained to that we'll actually take the netting down we'll train them to the high tensile wire this way they're trained to a couple of different things and uh, gives us some options in terms of moving them around and, and subdividing paddocks and things of that nature um, but the other reason we do this is simply because uh, training pigs to electric uh, can be an interesting experience and this is a two is one, one is none philosophy. Um, we uh, like having a backstop, so to speak, so that when they are getting trained to electric in that first couple of hours, if they happen to get a little hyper and wound up and they slip through that netting, we've still got them in a contained area on our farm. And they're not out running around, you know, uh, hundreds of yards away, and we're trying to go fetch them and bring them back. And, uh, you know, uh, getting a pig back into fence after he's gotten out is my least favorite thing ever on the farm. So I would strongly encourage you to have a nice training area set up. There are a couple of ways you can do this. If you've got a barn that's big enough, you can set your electric netting up inside of that. Um, if you don't, uh, you could, you know, uh, build a small area of high tensile fence or you could put up woven wire fence, whatever you want to use. If you don't want to go to that length, you could just go buy a, a few hog panels, uh, which are usually 16 feet long, and get yourself some T-posts and uh, you know tie the corners together and uh, just build yourself a little physical training corral like that um, depending on the size of the pigs when you get them home uh, you'll use one of two kinds of netting uh, what we used to use only uh, for training pigs was the premier 
uh, pig fence. We found that that was a little bit big if the pigs are under 50 to 60 pounds. So we also now have some uh, some other premier electric fencing that's uh, actually sold uh, to keep like raccoons out of a garden area. It's, it's shorter, but the the mesh is a lot tighter, and it's great for keeping smaller pigs in a contained area, and it does a great job training them to electricity. So depending on what size uh, pigs you bring home, just know that you may need one of two fence types there. And uh, I'll talk more about the uh, uh, Premier Portable Pig Fence here in a little bit. Um, and then obviously you're going to need some kind of energizer. That's up to you, whatever you want to buy. If you want a portable one, I strongly suggest the uh, the Premier brand uh, portable PRS fence chargers. Um, a 50 or a 100 is more than enough. Uh, if you want a fixed energizer, um, it's hard to go wrong with a Stay Fix or a Speedrite, uh, but they are expensive. I personally kind of like the Kencove brand uh, chargers that have come out in the last couple of years. They seem to work really well, and they're a lot less expensive. Uh, the next thing you would need would be some way to feed the pigs and honestly with three to five pigs you're going to be giving them enough grain that it would make sense to buy a small um, round pig feeder these are just kind of the typical ones you think of sitting in a in a hog barn it's kind of round on top it's got the little flaps on the bottom uh, when it's empty you can just simply you know tip it over on size and roll it into the next paddock you can put it on skids if you wanted to probably find one on craigslist pretty cheaply you might have to do a little work to it may have to put a new bottom in it or mount it to a piece of plywood or something uh, if it's all rusted out but you know, uh, 50 to 150 bucks, you could probably find a, a pretty good use feeder to, to make use of. Uh, and then the next thing you're going to need is some way for the uh, you know pigs to get used to uh, to drinking water from a nipple. And um, uh, I'll, I'll actually give Jack a, a link to a blog post um, on my website for what I call the piggy drinking deck. And this is a really simple, inexpensive thing to build. Uh, you're just making a little deck and using a tea post and a nipple drinker and some some garden hose, and that's that's pretty much it. And it's real easy to move around. It's portable, and yeah, and like I said, inexpensive, and it works really really well. And you can adjust it as the pigs get uh, older and mature and get taller. And uh, with that too, I'll, I'll give him a, a link uh, to an article on training pigs to electricity. So, uh, and then as far as a shelter goes. Wanting something, you know, just portable. If you're actually raising these guys out on pasture, which I actually raise my pigs in the the woods now, so the the heavy dense forest is their their shelter and their shade. But for a simple uh, portable shade structure, I would say just a, a, a 10 foot wide, 12 foot long. Uh, treated wood frame, uh, kind of similar to what I start with to build my chicken tractors, three cattle panels, uh, you know, a bent over in an arc, and then a, a reflective colored, uh, you know, good quality tarp up on top that you can uh, secure to the cattle panels with zip ties. Uh, that's really all you need. And that, again, that's something you can move pretty easily. You know, maybe a couple guys drag it or you can pull it with an ATV or something from paddock to paddock. But just something so that they can, uh, you know, get out of a really heavy rain storm or, um, uh, you know, get in for shade. And that's the main thing is shade to help them keep cool. Um, uh, yeah, that that's what I would suggest. I mean, anything much more than that is going to be too big and too bulky to, you know, kind of move around and, and rotate your pigs. So then you kind of ask about, you know, netting versus using strands to, you know, keep them where you want them or, or whatever. You know, I only use the netting and high tensile fence. I don't use strands of electric like on the reels. I've seen a lot of other people do that. I've got good friends of mine that do that. To each his own. Good for them. I sleep a whole lot better at night using the Premier 
portable pig netting because it's a whole lot harder for the pigs to get out of it. I just like it. it again, it's it's pretty inexpensive and it holds up over time. Uh, I would actually tell you to buy seven 100 foot sections of that stuff, and here's why: you can set up a uh, 100 by 100, roughly a quarter acre area with four sections of this stuff for a paddock. When it's time to move your pigs, you set up three more on one side of that, and you just open up the middle section and let the pigs in. Then you take the other three sections down. You just keep leapfrogging around your property with seven sections of this stuff. That's how I started. Um, that was all the money I had, and that's what we bought, and it, it worked really well. Uh, now, you could use some single strands of electric if you wanted to, uh, if these guys are in your orchard area, to keep them out from your away from your trees. And I tell you what, you'll be surprised how much damage they'll do out on pasture and to fruit trees if you don't prohibit them in some way. So you could use, again, the single strands of electric to keep them away from your trees. Or dare I say, and I know this may sound heretical, you might want to consider wringing their noses. Mark Shepard, I've seen it. I've been to his farm. He actually does this so that they don't damage the pasture and don't damage the roots of the trees and don't pull the bark off the trees because there's something in the bark that they want to eat. Just something for you to consider there. Um, and they will love the oak trees and the acorns and stuff. They're not really a fan of walnuts. We've got some walnut trees. They really don't eat a whole lot of the walnuts. I'm not really sure what it is they don't like about them, but acorns they go nuts for. So those are some thoughts there. As far as improving your pasture, uh, this fall you could actually go through with a little hand seeder and spread some uh, some red clover, white clover, maybe some alfalfa, just any kind of legumes. It's going to add protein to your pasture. you got orchard grass, which is great grass, wonderful for hay. But if you don't have a lot of legumes out there, you might want to consider doing that. You could also do a frost seeding uh, in the spring with those same uh, perennial legumes as well. If you don't know what frost seeding is, just do a quick Internet search and, and do some reading there. It's a pretty simple way to get the seed into the ground in February, March time frame. So uh, one last thing I want to mention is uh, w- with your, your portable shelter, uh, don't try to run these pigs too long. Uh, you want to have them done probably in, in New Jersey, uh, maybe like October or so. You don't want to run them where it gets too cold uh, without a real shelter that they can get in and, and keep warm and keep dry, they can get pneumonia pretty fast if there's a nasty cold front that comes through and produces any snow. Uh, so think about getting them scheduled early with the butcher, and remember that butchers get really busy that time of year with pigs when you get into September, October, November. Uh, if you're going to keep them longer than that, you probably ought to think about having an area where you can put them into a real shelter that's really going to get them up off the ground and keep them dry. So those are really my thoughts, Dave. I hope that you uh, find that helpful. Uh, if you, anyone out there would like to learn more about me, you can go out to my website at darbysimpson.com and read lots of articles like the ones I mentioned. Um, also, want to let everybody know that uh, on September 4th and 5th, we're actually going to be doing a workshop for a day and a half here at my farm. And uh, there's going to be a blog post out on my website about that this week. Uh, as of this recording, which is Wednesday, August 12th, I only have nine seats left for this uh, course. Um, this is not a sanctioned TSP event, but it will be complete with a barter blanket and all of the other fun TSP uh, festivities at some of those other events. So if you'd like to learn more and you think you're interested in coming, go out to my website, DarbySimpson.com. Check out the blog post on it. There's an itinerary and accommodations and all that good stuff out there. And I hope to see many of you TSP listeners here. Jack, thanks so much. Take care. Good stuff. And I have to say that um, when you take the time to do this and you raise pork on pasture this way, that the product that you get is is so 
dramatically better than anything you get in a market. It, 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 it's hard to even explain the difference. So if you have the space, the time, and the energy, it's something to definitely consider giving a try. And it also tends to be one of the more profitable things a person can do in a reasonable time frame if they want to get into the business of farming. Next question is for Nick Ferguson. It says, can you please go into more detail on the vague advice that is often given of it's best to plant new trees in the fall? To perhaps make this question more interesting by assuming some specifics, what would the ideal time and procedure be for planting bare root fruit trees and other perennials in a whale berms that are a few months old and have had summer crop of buckwheat, cowpea, clover, and radish in a zone 6 climate in Ohio, early fall, late fall, what temperature or other considerations come into play? Can you walk us through the full planting procedure to give these new trees their best chance for success? Thanks, Mike. All right, Mike's question on planting procedure for new trees and other perennials. Okay, we have a couple things that I need to cover so that everyone is on the same page and we're all talking about the same thing. Bare root means a plant is dug 99% of the time while it's dormant. Its roots are cut and often trimmed to quite a short length. Normally all the feeder roots are gone and most of the main roots are cut down to somewhere around 6 inches or so. Ball and burlap means a plant is grown in the ground. Same kind of thing in rows. And usually shortly before sale, sometimes a year or two or three even, it's dug up with some of its root system in the native soil, balled up in a burlap wrapping, and shipped to you somehow. Now, these are normally like bigger trees. Um, and they dig these up often with great big hydraulic spades. Potted plants are grown in pots and have all their roots intact, except, of course, the taproot, which is present but almost always useless at this point. Um, and traditional bare root plants should always, always, always be planted late winter to early spring. I'm actually working on a unique method of growing plants that can be pulled and shipped bare root any time of the year to be planted at any time of the year, and they have their taproot and all feeder roots intact and ready to grow. Um, but I can't tell you any more details just yet. It's not exactly top secret, but I don't want to spoil the surprise. If you want to be the first to hear about it, go to my website, permacultureclassroom.com and sign up for my mailing list, and you will get an email when I make my growing method public next year. I hardly ever send out emails, so you don't have to worry about spam and junk, but for news and updates, that's where you go. But back to your question, now that we have the definitions clear, bare root plants purchased from any nursery or grower that I know of should be planted in late winter to early spring. Now, period. I do not like planting bare root plants in the fall, um, and you definitely don't want to do that in uh, the summer. Ball and burlap and potted plants can be planted at any time, but really the optimal time for colder climates and regions is definitely late winter to early spring. But if you live in the south, you should try to plant those types of plants in the fall. Here's why. Plants generally will grow roots any time the soil temperatures are above somewhere around 40 degrees Fahrenheit or 4.5 degrees Celsius. What that means is if you put that plant in the ground during the cool fall period where the soil temps are nice and conducive to growing, they will grow the root system on into the winter, and depending how far south you are, that might be all winter long, thereby giving the plant a huge advantage when spring rolls around and they have this nice large root system to grow from. Um, now, if you were to plant... Um, fallen burlap or potted plants in the summer 
or um, early fall, um, you're going to have a lot higher failure rates because they just don't have the root system to um, to handle the drier conditions that most of those plants will will be under. So you really have to be on top of irrigation with some with plants like that. So the planting procedure. As far as soil prep and fertilization goes, um, I do not like to fertilize things or add special soil and compost to the holes when I plant things. Um, <clears throat> it can it can uh, make the plant or the tree want to stay in that nice little pocket and not branch out and reach out for for nutrients and water. And you really want them to, as soon as they can, get roots wide out there so that they can get well-established and handle um, storm conditions and handle drought and and reach as many different diverse minerals and nutrients as they can. And then I always fertilize on top of the soil. So I lay stuff on top and it rots and soil organisms turn it. Uh, sometimes I'll pull back mulch and then put compost or manure down, and then put the mulch back on top. But I try to get it into that active area in between the soil surface and the mulch uh, top. Um, so I do this when I plant anything in the ground. Uh, anytime I'm making a hole in the ground, I don't do this for, like, seeds. But I dig a, a hole one and a half times as deep as the distance between the root crown and the tip of the longest roots, and that just loosens up that soil. I place the plant inside the hole to check the depth. This is mainly for, for trees and, and bushes. You hold the plant up to approximately the height it should be when finished and start filling the hole with the soil I removed, starting with the richest, blackest topsoil around the roots. And then I continue to fill the hole till about halfway full of the native soil, then fill the hole with water to the top of the hole. You add the remaining native soil making almost a mud pit, you know, a slurry, until you fill the hole up to the root crown, just barely bearing the root crown. And you might want to kind of wiggle that plant around in there to make sure the roots kind of spread out a little bit. And then you want that root crown to be slightly higher than the native soil level. The root crown is where the trunk of the plant transitions and widens out into the root system, just so you know. You do not want to bury the root crown. I said to just barely cover it, that's because the soil you just loosely filled in will settle down and fall away from the root crown area. Uh, next, I'll use my fingers and kind of poke holes like, you know, like a claw shaped to my hands, and I'll just poke all around the root system, and that uh, forces pockets air out of that muddy slurry, and it helps make sure that plant is securely planted, and I make sure it's pointing upright. Now, some plants and trees need to be staked. If you're in an exposed area where it's going to be windy, make sure you don't keep them too tightly staked. There should be a little give and sway if you rock the plant back and forth, but only a little. The action of stressing those small roots will encourage the plant to more strongly root itself. It'll send out more laterals um, to make sure it's it's strongly rooted and, and secure when that wind blows and it, it wiggles back and forth. If you tie it down too tightly so that it cannot move at all, then it won't try to secure itself and it'll be more likely to blow over um, in a windstorm. Uh, then I mulch around the plant to optimally like three times the distance of the drip line. Now, I live in the south. If 
if you live up north or somewhere where it's moist, um, take all my mulch recommendations with a grain of salt. You might want to do very little mulch. You might want to do no mulch. You might want to do like a green mulch. Um, but if you're anywhere where it gets hot and dry, then I say, you know, at least four inches of mulch and go three times the distance of that drip line away from that uh, new planting. If you're in the deep south, um, almost anywhere in Texas, Louisiana, um, Mississippi, parts of Alabama and Florida, then you want to make sure you use a lot of mulch. Um, you can mound it up all around the new tree, making kind of a volcano shape with, with the mulch pulled away from the root crown. So you want that root crown exposed to air. And you can, man, you can pile that up to a foot or more of mulch, like loose leaves, even wood chips. And that's the best way to go. Water the area that was mulched, and you're pretty much good to go. But real quick, I'm going to touch on that root crown issue. Most people don't know what the root crown is. I've seen landscapers who've been in the business like 20 years and more who don't even know what it is and plant things too deep. I don't understand how you can be in business for that long and still make such rookie mistakes. But if you plant something too deep, you can rot the trunk or kill the plant. Some people call it sick plant plant syndrome where I live. Um, you always want to make sure that the root crown is either barely covered with like no more than half an inch of mulch material or not covered at all. Do not bury the root crown three inches in the soil or you'll eventually kill the plant if you do that. And don't leave the root crown sticking up out of the soil because you'll kill it just as quick. So, man, I hope I answered your question well enough. If you need me to clarify anything, please let me know in the show comment section and I'll help out all I can. And Jap, I tip my hat to you, brother. This is a great show. I can't say how much you've helped me over the years. You're a great friend and wow. Who else could bring such a group of experts together? Permaculture movers and shakers like Jeff Lawton, Ben Falk, Paul Wheaton. I'm truly honored to be included in a show with the likes of these guys. Thank you so much for the opportunity. TSPT community, I love you guys. Keep up the great questions. Have a wonderful weekend. Nick, signing out. You know, um, at one time, Kelly Herndon, who did all the video work for the PDC with Josiah, referred to Nick Ferguson as the nicest person you'll ever meet. I, I have to say I agree with that. He's also one of the smartest guys I've ever known. I try not to tell him that too much because you ruin smart guys when you tell them how smart they are. Uh, but Nick is the kind of guy that can handle it. His advice is also spot on, especially I want to just reinforce one thing about the depth of planting of trees. There's a guy around here in these parts called Howard Garrett, the dirt doctor. I know Nick's pretty familiar with him too. And he says all the time on his show, the number one reason that trees suffer, especially, and it's right here in North Texas too, where it's kind of harsh, is they're planted too deep. It's either they're planted too deep, Or people take them out of a pot when they're not bare roots and they got circling roots and don't do anything about it and just plop them in the ground without freeing up the roots. Or both. And uh, I would like to add, uh, and this is why this question came in, because we say so often plant in the fall, I think that's the other reason trees don't get established well, is they're planted in the spring because that's when they're all in the box stores. Uh, that's when they're all over the place. That's when people plant them. And they just don't have the time to, to adapt at the root level before the intense summers come. I think for someone in Ohio, that's probably mitigated quite a bit. But uh, St Stefan Sobekayak, who is the guy behind the Miracle Orchard in, in Canada, says the same thing. And his climate's even more mild as far as temperatures on the, on the hot side. So um, it seems like putting those guys in the ground in, in, in the fall 
or the very early spring, before bud break, when those roots have all that energy dropped into them, is really the best way to go, depending on what is possible. Remember, you always have to do what you can with what you have and play the hand that's dealt you. And sometimes you have to do things a little bit off time. But if you can, that's the gold standard as far as I'm concerned. Next question comes from John Pugliano. It says... What are the pros and cons of being an employee versus an independent contractor? I was interviewed with a company that's interested in my technical and proposal writing skills, but does not have the budget to pay what I used to make in my last position. During the interview, the hiring manager suggested a 1099 contract arrangement for part-time work of 20 to 30 hours a week. Uh, I'll leave the rest of this for John to take care of, uh, uh, but uh, this is from Andrew. So, uh, John, how can we help Andrew here? Hello, Andrew, and thank you for your question about the pros and cons of working as an employee versus an independent contractor. You mentioned that you're willing to get back to work and you realize that you might have to take a pay cut to do that, but you also don't want to sell yourself short. You've already been through the interviewing process, so they obviously like you. They want your skills. They've already told you that they don't have the budget to pay you what you had previously been making. And it was their idea to bring you on as a contractor working less than 40 hours so that they could afford your services. So they already know what you're worth. They just can't afford to pay you a full-time salary. So now I think it really just comes down to you using some marketing skills and some rational analysis as to how much you should be paid. And then you have to be prepared to negotiate that. So it's really that fine balance between being assertive but not being too aggressive. I'd suggest that you take out your Excel spreadsheet and start doing some what-if calculations. You mentioned that you may not be able to replace your former six-figure salary, but you know what? I'd start there. You want to do these as what-if calculations. So on the top side, start out with your $100,000 figure, and then if you're willing to accept you know, maybe an $80,000 or a $65,000 salary, plug that in as well. Then you want to make some additions to that base salary. Now, since you're going to be working as a contractor and not as an employee, you want to add some numbers back into that uh, that initial base salary. For example, as a contractor, you're going to have to pay the full load of your Medicare and Social Security tax burden. Just using rough numbers, say that's an additional 8% over what you would have paid as an employee. So add 8% to your $100,000 salary. What about retirement plans or uh, 401k matching contributions that your former employer used to pay you? Think of those type of benefits and costs to the employer that they'd currently be paying a full-time worker or is customary in the type of industry that you work in. Whatever they are, add those into it. You also want to make sure that you're not required to come up with any type of liability insurance or workman's comp, those kind of things. And if you are, you want to factor that in as well. The bottom line is that I would look at all the perks and benefits and extra costs that an employee costs them, and even health insurance. You mentioned that you're covered under your wife's medical insurance and that you really don't need that. But for negotiating purposes, I'd encourage you to include that in, at least in the initial negotiations. So come up with whatever that annual salary would be, and then that would be the real market-based employee cost that they would have to pay if they had someone with your qualifications and your talents. So start with that larger number that you projected, come up with what that would be on an hourly basis, and then try and negotiate that 20 or 30 hour work week based on that hourly wage. You made some assumptions in that calculation, like what type of additional compensation they would be providing in the form of, um, you know, matching a retirement program. And you already stated that you don't need things like the medical insurance. So your number is going to be high and that's going to give you room to negotiate. So go into your meeting with the hiring manager being very confident. 
throw out your top line number. Be prepared to justify it if he asks about it. He already knows that you were highly compensated in your previous position. If he says that number's still out of his budget, be prepared to scale it back. But don't start out at the lowest level that you're willing to accept, but make sure you put in all those other ancillary costs that are what the employer would be paying somebody else in your industry. Because if you leave those out, you will be selling yourself short. And as a contractor, you're going to find that your take-home pay is going to be a whole lot less if you don't factor in those other costs like the payroll tax deduction that you're going to have to absorb. As far as other things to watch out for, make sure that if they're contracting with you and they're paying you for only 20 or 25 hours, that that's all that you're putting in. Remember, you're not an employee. You're not on salary. If they can only afford to pay you for 25 hours, then you need to cut it off at 24 hours. Otherwise, you'll find yourself in there working 60-hour weeks and only getting compensated for 25 hours. So again, you have to be firm about that. Put that in writing. Make sure that's part of the contract and part of the understanding of the work relationship. Now, besides your compensation, the other two things that you need to consider and that you want to make sure you don't sell yourself short on is your ability to be a free agent and your ability to work from a remote office at least some of the time. So as far as being a free agent, remember, you're not an employee, so you want to make sure that it's understood that you have the ability as a free agent, that when you're not on the clock with them, you're able to sell your time and your services to other companies. As long as you're not breaching any confidentiality agreements, you should be able to find work and compensation working for other people. So make sure you establish what your free agent rights are, and then this plays into the other point of working remotely. If you can work remotely some or all of the time, that allows you to be more productive, to save time in commuting, to, to not have to waste time with, you know, inner office politics and things like that. So you can be more productive during those 20 or 30 hours by working from your home office. And because working in that fashion makes you more productive, you're most likely going to be able to go out and pick up other contract work from other companies. And that might help you get back to that six-figure salary that you were making before. So I would encourage you, if you can do it, to definitely have more than one iron in the fire. Andrew, thank you for your question. If you'd like to learn more about my stock market commentary and my general thoughts on wealth building principles, check out the Wealth Setting Podcast. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. It's one of those times where I agree with every single word said by the expert council member with one tiny bitty exception. And I don't think it's really a disagreement. It's just maybe a... a an addition, uh, all or part of the time work, working remotely, I would shoot for 100%, period. I, I would have to have a very compelling reason uh, that, that they need me to come to their office to do something like this as a profession for them as a contractor. Uh, pointing out, of course, that if you do so, you're actually going to cost them in space and in resources that they don't have to pay for if you're providing them from your, for yourself by working at home. And I would say that I would even possibly approach it this way, unless I thought I was really in danger of losing it and needed it. If you expect me to come in here to contract for you and my commute time is three hours, then I'm billing you for that time. If 25 hours a week, three hours in, in a car driving here and back when I don't have to, then you're paying for those three hours. I'm not an employee. I have all these other expenses to take care of. Um, I would also reiterate what John said. Make sure that, that you do not uh, are, are not restricted in any way from taking any other business from anybody else other than from the standpoint of confidentiality. Obviously, you couldn't work for their competitor using the information you have to 
uh, write counter proposals for for things. Uh, and then the other thing is, I, I kind of want to point this out to you too. You're writing proposals. Maybe write some for yourself. Uh, use this experience, and how many of these types of agreements can you get? Um, you may find there's a lot of people that would want to retain you as a contractor on 1099, but aren't going to say, you know, it's going to be 20, 25 hours a week. It's going to be, we need uh, a proposal done uh, three or four times a year by you. Uh, and those tend to be things that you can get even higher hourly rates for. Or they can be bid jobs as well where you say, okay, well, looking at this, I'm going to charge you $8,000 to do this proposal for you. And then the sky's the limit on what your hourly rate is on how quickly can you actually get it done and how much follow-up does it require and things like that. But with contracting, I prefer to stay more of a straight hour, but I agree with John also on this. Do not work one millisecond, not one millisecond longer than you bill for. You, 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 you just don't do it because every time you do it, it'll be a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. It'll become more and more expected of you. And the last thing, you know, you asked for the, the pros and cons. Here's one of the big pros. It's not just, it's not just not having to drive to work every day. Okay. It is the fact that you have the freedom of the other hours that you would spend not only, um, doing the job, and the commuting, but just the total hours you would work. So if they hired you as a salaried employee, they'll give you your hundred, hundred and ten, hundred twenty thousand dollar a year on a salaried position, and you have to work fifty hours this week to get your job done. Well, that's that comes with the pay, right? Well, then you have to work fifty hours. So now it's not a forty hour week job at a hundred k. It's fifty hour week or fifty five or sixty hours. If they're calling you at eight o'clock at night because you need to work on something, have it ready in the morning for them or what have you. They're not getting paid extra. If they call you at 8 o'clock at night because they need something done last minute, you know, maybe that might cost them a little bit more money. Or you'd make sure you understand you're billing for those extra hours and you're doing it as a favor. And then one last thing. You have to turn on the businessman thinker here, businessman brain. If they tell you that you're going to give you 20 to 25 hours a week or 20 to 30 hours a week, making you feel that 20 is the minimum and 30 is the maximum, you need to have any commitment in writing or don't take it as a commitment. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying if they say, well, we'll have 20 to 30 hours a week work for you, but in the contract they don't say that, then it never happened. And anything not in that contract was never said and never happened. Because one of the big advantages for me, if I'm employing you as a contractor, is if I just don't have work for you for the next three weeks, I just don't have work for you for the next three weeks, so I don't have any expenses for you for the next three weeks. So I just don't have to worry about it. You don't, I don't worry about unemployment compensation claims. I don't worry about trying to find something for you to do because I'd rather just pay you. I don't worry about anything. I just tell you I don't have anything for you. So you need to think about all of that. And that's why multiple clients make sense and things like that. And I would really stand a hard line on, I'm not coming to your office uh, as a contractor. There's no need for it. Uh, it takes up additional time uh, if I do that. Um, and, and it doesn't really fit for what you're asking me to do. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and take the next one. This next one is from Michael Jordan. It says, I have a pretty basic question for you. How much work is beekeeping really? Uh, I'll let Michael take it from there. Here's this week's question from James. I have a pretty basic question for you. How much work is beekeeping? Details? I don't know anything about it. I have an interest in learning, 
Once I have the basics established, how much time is required for maintenance of a hive, personal use of honey, pollination for plants around my land? I have a lot of demand for my time, and I want to make sure to keep up with it if the drive, if I dive into this project. Thanks, James. Well, James, AB Friendly Company, beekeeping design course is coming out at the end of this year, starting in 2016. So logging in and taking that course of or some of the modules that we have in it and offer will help you. Uh, this will let you look at some of what it takes to do some of the management. As always, it takes a little more time starting out. After three years of working with the bees, I feel that beekeeping it makes a, a good beekeeper, that you're going to stay with it. Uh, working the bees and the beehive uh, once a week for one to three hours is your first year's common. I would say eight hours a month for three hives. The less you work them, the more they swarm, or fewer products you get from them. Natural comb hives takes a little bit longer because you have to move slower or the combs will fall. And you'll have to check your hives every nine days no matter what because the combs will stick to the side or they'll cross comb or the comb becomes extremely heavy and on hot days it will fall. So you have to take your time and make sure that those kind of systems are managed a little bit different. Hive management is different for every keeper. Backyard beekeepers are different than hobby beekeepers. Hobby beekeepers are different than commercial beekeepers. Commercial beekeepers are different than industrial beekeepers. Time is uh, what you want from management of your hives. If you just want bees to have them two hours a month for three hives, you're not requeening. You're not really looking for swarm management. You're not really looking at rotating boxes or frames. You're not looking for mass production. You're just going out every once in a while to see if you still have bees. Um, when you start looking into different management skill sets, you're making queens or doing tracheal mite checks and inspections, they take more time. You'll be looking at your highs every day for two weeks, for an hour every day when you're looking on requeening and making queens, or five hours one day doing tracheal mite checks with a microscope. Beekeeping is like any system of animal husbandry. After you learn the basic skill sets, you're good to go with just minimal work for minimal production. I have chickens. I do not breed them for population. I do not have more than 12 for my home egg production and insect control. And I'm only doing, uh, and I'm not doing like 11 week turnaround for meat. Uh, they're more or less household pets that I spend an hour every day feeding the chickens, the quail, the turkeys, the rabbits, and the other household pets that I have. I'm not looking for mass production from them. I'm mostly enjoyment uh, for my inner homestead. I make my money with the bees, so I'm looking for more of my investment and time in that. I spend five hours a week to look at 75 beehives in four locations. If I was into making lots of duck eggs or selling quail meat for income, I would manage more of my time or hire people to help me with that work of my aspect like I do bees. I think having a, uh, a timeline or building out a line or a schedule of your work is better like every three months, I do oil changes at my homestead. Cars, bikes, trucks, RVs, motorcycles, air compressors. Everything gets their oil checked or changed, keeping everything running that I have done, keeping my time managed for good existing projects that we have done, and keeps me on a good time frame to keep my homestead with its upkeep and growth. It's the same with the bees. In your first year, you'll spend around 36 to 57 hours with your bees, and that's from setting them up, reading, schooling, doing meetings, if you become fascinated with the skill set, it'll probably be more. But three hives, I do not uh, I do not expect 57 hours being too bad for a year. If you go to church one hour a week, that's 57 hours in one year anyway. So think of it like on that level. 
that I have bees and I'm looking for them for two hours every week for 140 hours a year. My time's worth about $12 an hour. For 140 hours, that's $168 of year in labor and equipment. The question is, is your time worth that skill set? When you hire me for bees, you're looking at a three-hour minimum charge of $115 an hour, or you're looking at a minimum contract of a $1,200 for the day. So the bottom line, the more you know, the more you're worth to somebody and yourself for that skill set. The more you put in, the more you get out. Fun is not to be work, and work can always be fun. I hope this helps you on seeing the cost management, the time needed for minimal beekeeping skills. This is Michael Jordan. I am the bee whisperer from the Bee Friendly Company, telling you to buy your honey local from a beekeeper, to support your local farms and cottage industries, and be kind to your fellow man, for he is the one that we're looking to teach. I'd like to add on to that one a little bit as well with uh, experience I just recently had with Jason, who's my bee mentor that, that Michael kind of linked me up with uh, down here locally. You know, we just talked about his hives and, and what he does and, uh, you know, putting them out on, on organic cotton fields and the honey and what the honey's worth and, you know, what he gets paid to do bee removals. Um, and he does several of those a week during the busy season and swarm captures and All these other things, and, you know, the guy is a, a paramedic, which means he works, you know, several days on and several days off, so that gives him flexibility to do this. And you start to realize the wealth that you can build as a beekeeper is pretty spectacular. Now, I'm not saying it's like drive a Ferrari next year money, but what I'm saying is a person that builds up a, a system, you know, where they're managing a hundred hives, where they're doing removals, where they have the skill set and creates flexibility. I don't know through like contracting 20 hours a week and freeing yourself up for the, the rest, uh, and does that over time develops a significant equity stake in what they have. It can build out over time. Then as the skill becomes worth more, the time becomes worth more and the leverage becomes worth more. And you might wonder, well, why does a guy like Michael charge so much to do what he does? Because he probably doesn't want to do it. That's why. What do I mean by that? I mean that when you start, let's say, saying, I'll do this work for you for a given rate, what you're saying is you will now be able to command me spending my time working for you versus me working for myself. And generally speaking, when I look at that, I have to be able to make at least twice, at least twice doing work for you compared to what I would make doing work for myself. Is that because I'm selfish? No, it's because I'm business-minded. Because here's what's happened. If I'm working in my business and I do something that generates $1,000 in revenue, it is most likely the case that the people I did business with to get that $1,000 in revenue inside my business, inside of what I do, so selling product or what have you, versus outside consulting, so to speak, or putting, if I'm a beekeeper, building hives, establishing hives, Uh, putting hives on somebody's uh, organic, uh, what do you call it, uh, orchard or something like that, that, that is going to result in recurrent revenue from that source. Where if I come out as a beekeeper and set up 10 hives on your site for you and walk away, I'm probably not going to be coming back there and billing you again, or you're going to change your mind and I've got to come take the hives away. Right, So it makes more sense for me to be developing the equity in my business versus developing equity for somebody else in some fashion, and I need enough financial reward to pull me out of what I'm doing. 
Um, this is something that as you're building small businesses, you really need to think about because it's so tempting to think, well, I can run over here and do $1,000 worth of consulting for two days and put that $1,000 in my pocket. Yes, you can, but what would those two days invested in your business be worth over five years? All right, Or can I go do that and reinvest the capital back into my business or free myself up for two weeks to not do anything but work on the internal capital, the intellectual, the cultural, the material, the social capital of my business? You always have to balance it. But for me, especially once a business is rolling forward, when you want to pull me outside of that to consult, I've got to charge a significant premium to the point where I don't even do it anymore. I don't even do it anymore. That really doesn't answer the question, but... We kind of have a theme running this week on the on the show with you know doing things for yourself, building businesses, uh, creating wealth for yourself, and that's that's one really important strategic way to think about wealth building. And on top of it, you know, Michael will come here and teach a class for nothing, just because he wants to teach people. So it's 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 really interesting when you start realizing that the more you behave that way, the more you manage your wealth properly, eventually the more you're able to turn around and just give. And that's why we develop these, these, these true streams of wealth. So that when we get to a point of stability where we know what we have and we know it's going to keep building, we can start giving abundantly as well. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and take the next question. This one, for someone who gives it all every week, Erica Strauss. Uh, Erica has a question this week from Bill. Says, I have a large amount of tomatoes to harvest. I want sun-dried tomatoes. Once I have them dried, do I can them? I've never canned before. Do I dry them like beef jerky? My tomatoes vary in size. Any help would be great. Bill in Ohio. Erica, what say you? Well, hi, Bill. I've got a ton to cover with your questions, so I'm just going to dive right in. Now, you said that you've done jerky before, so you know that dehydration as a food preservation method is just the removing of enough moisture that bacteria, yeast, mold, and spoilage pathogens can't grow in your food. It's really as simple as that. So the key to successful food dehydration is getting the right level of heat and the right airflow so that the moisture from your food evaporates thoroughly and evenly. If a food is dried too quickly or at too high of a temperature, that can dry the outside of the food but leave trapped moisture on the inside of the food. And that moisture that's trapped can allow those spoilage bacteria and molds to grow. For tomatoes and for most fruits, what you're looking for in dehydrating those things is a temperature of about 130 to 140 degrees. Now, step one is starting with the right tomato. I mean, it all begins with the with the product. So Roma types like San Marzano, Amish Paste, or Viva Italia, those are really ideal for drying because they have a low water content to the flesh. This is the same reason these are good for canning and saucing. So these tomatoes will dry nice and dense and creamy, and they're going to take less time to dry than more high-moisture slicing varieties. So once you've got the right kind of tomatoes, you've got to prep them. Now, one reason why I love drying tomatoes over canning, for example, is that you can totally skip the blanching and peeling process. Just rinse and dry your tomatoes. Of course, sort through, look for any signs of rot or bruising and pull those tomatoes and set them aside. Now, if you're using Romas, you're probably not going to have a real defined core. But if you're using a kind of tomato where you've got um, a real defined white or hard core or that stem end that gets really sort of dry and hard, you want to cut that out and then just go ahead and slice your tomatoes in half lengthwise. Or if they're a little larger, you can even quarter them length. 
lengthwise. If you aren't using a drying variety at this point, you might want to scoop out the seed cavity. But if, again, you're using those Roma types or other meaty, dense varieties, that's really not necessary. So that's it. Basically, the prep work is make sure your tomatoes are in good shape, wash them and cut them in half. Now, when it comes to the actual drying of the tomato, you've got pretty much four options. The first is an honest-to-goodness, truly sun-dried tomato. And this is as simple and as basic as it gets. You set your prepared tomatoes out in the hot sun, generally on some kind of a rack, so air will flow all around your tomatoes. Usually you cover them with some kind of mesh or insect netting so that bugs don't get to your tomatoes and nibble on them or, you know, even worse, lay eggs in them. And then the heat from the sun combined with hopefully a nice, good, natural breeze will dry out your tomatoes gradually and gently. Now, this method has some real advantages. First of all, it's free, or it's close enough to free that we might as well call it free. And it takes no energy. And the resultant tomatoes are truly sun-dried, which sun-dried tomato purists will say is the only way to get the best flavor. The downside is this method is really only practical if you live in a hot, dry climate. Basically, the desert or a hot Mediterranean-type climate like Italy. And unfortunately, most of us just don't live in that kind of climate. One thing to look at as an alternative is a solar dehydrator. A solar dehydrator is a good option if you live someplace where the summers do get hot, but not maybe desert hot, and you don't have the same very dry air. I don't really have time to get into the details of solar dehydrating, but uh, it basically works like a mini greenhouse, raising the temperature around the drying fruit up to ideally that 130 to 140 degree temperature. So, Bill, just Google around if you're interested in this. There are lots of DIY plans available for free online so you can get a better feeling of how solar dehydrators work and if they might be a good solution for you and your tomatoes. Probably the most common modern way to do dehydration is with an electric dehydrator. Now, a good electric dehydrator is really, it's easy. Um, They're a tabletop appliance that are designed with a heater and a fan to provide pretty much the ideal consistent environment for dehydrating foods. Good dehydrators have an adjustable heat so you can dial in literally onto the optimum temperature for whatever food you're drying. Electric dehydrators are available at a very wide range of prices, and generally you do get what you pay for. The brand Excalibur is widely regarded as the Cadillac of dehydrators. Wait, do people still say that? Maybe it's like the Tesla of dehydrators since it's electric and expensive. But an Excalibur dehydrator will run you maybe $200 to $600 or more, depending on how fancy a model you want. But people who have them swear by them. And at the lower end, you can find Nesco-style round dehydrators with a fan and a heating element and some basic controls for less than 50 bucks if you look around. So generally, these types of dehydrators are perfectly serviceable. There are a few dehydrators available without a fan, and these are sometimes called convection dehydrators. They rely on the rising heat from the heater coil to provide the airflow. Again, no fan. My opinion is that these things are cheap for a reason, and I personally consider them worse than useless. I have lost fruit to molding while it was in the dehydrator with this kind of design, so I'd rather have nothing than rely on one of those. Almost all of these machines are going to have some hot spots, and your fruit will not be perfectly uniform in size. So just check in on it every hour, every couple of hours, and if one tray is drying faster, swap it out with the one that's drying
flying slower. Now, if none of the methods I've talked about so far are going to work for you, you can still dry tomatoes using your oven. You're basically turning your oven into a dehydrator as best you can. And the way you do this is you just set the tomatoes on like a cookie cooling rack, and then you pop those trays into your oven and set your oven to the absolute lowest temperature you can. If your oven goes down to 130 or 140, that's great, but it probably won't. Your lowest oven setting is likely to be 200. That's pretty common. So if that's your situation, you're going to need to keep the oven door just ajar, just crack it, and keep an eye on your tomatoes as they dry. The big question, how do you tell when your tomatoes are done? Here's what you're looking for. Uh, First of all, you want to test tomato pieces that are cool. So whatever method of dehydration you've used, let the tomato pieces you're testing cool before examining them. The tomato pieces should look dark red. Even a little reddish brown is pretty normal, and they should be collapsed and pretty much flat. When you take one of these tomato pieces between your thumb and forefinger, it shouldn't be sticky, even on the cut surface, although a bit of tackiness while the tomatoes are warm is pretty normal. If the tomato feels at all squishy, like you can almost feel a kind of puffiness under the surface, it's definitely not ready and needs to go back. If you aren't sure, you just take the tomato, tear it in half, just rip it. It should rip, but not snap. A snap means that the tomato is a bit over dried. If you see any noticeable moisture, beads of tomato juice, anything that looks wet or shiny in the center, then your tomato definitely needs more time. So let's talk about storing those dried tomatoes. You want to make sure that all your tomato pieces are evenly dried. So there's no like hidden little bit of moisture in one piece that might start to mold and contaminate your fruit in storage. There is a method called conditioning, which is kind of an insurance policy against tomatoes and other fruit, which might have some variability in their moisture level. So to condition your dried tomatoes, you pile all the tomato pieces loosely in like a big Tupperware container or glass jar. You want something that you can sort of see into and you want something that has a lid. So you put the lid on the jar and you set those tomatoes someplace warm and dry and out of the way and you leave them there for about a week. And every day as you go by, you look and you give the jar a good shake to keep the tomatoes from sticking to each other. And you examine the jar for any kind of moisture on the inside. So if you see moisture, you have to haul all your tomatoes out of the jar and then dry them longer. If you don't see any moisture in the jar after a week, then you can safely assume that the moisture level between all the pieces of tomatoes has equalized. So after you've done this conditioning treatment, your tomatoes are completely fine to store at room temperature in an airtight, something like a sealed mason jar. Any dried fruit treated this way will stay in good condition for about a year. Now, Bill, this conditioning process is a great idea. It really is. It's recommended by experts and all that. And that said, I don't do it. I never do. And here's why. Dried fruit takes up a very tiny amount of room compared to the fresh version. So what I do for storing my dried tomatoes and other fruit is I typically take all those dried tomatoes and I just shove them in a gallon Ziploc plastic bag and I toss that bag in the freezer. And over the season, as I dry another batch, I just cool those new dried tomatoes and I add them to my bag. So I'll get a bag of peaches going, a bag of pears, a bag of tomatoes, a bag of plums. And this is very easy. It's a very easy way for me to manage my food preservation in little bite-sized chunks. So Bill, you asked if you should can your dried tomatoes. No, don't can them. Uh, If you have a vacuum canner, and I know Jack has discussed these, you can absolutely vacuum can your dried tomatoes in something like a mason jar for a longer, high-quality shelf life at room temperature. This is actually a really good idea if you have a vacuum canner. But there's no reason to 
into water bath can dried tomatoes. Now, if I misunderstood and you were asking about how to can fresh tomatoes, well, my friend, that's something I'm going to have to tackle another time because I am definitely out of time for this week. This is Erica from Northwest Edible Life. Come say hi anytime at nwedible.com or facebook.com slash nwedible. Thank you again for all your great questions. Keep them coming, and I will talk to you next week. Isn't she just awesome? And I love having an expert panel because if you asked me that question, my entire response to it would have been, oh, um, now I know. And now you know, too. And knowledge is power. And now you know. G.I.J. Remember that? <laughs> if you were an 80s kid, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Anyway, uh, let's move on from there. I got a question now for Gary Collins. Um, this is, if one is going to choose to eat cheese... Are they better off with raw, non-organic cheese or organic but pasteurized cheese? I have looked, but all I, but that is all I can find in my area. Non-organic but raw. At least it's not advertised as organic or grass-fed. Or cheese that is grass-fed and organic but is pasteurized thanks in advance. Brandon, Gary, what say you? This seems like an easy one, but I bet when you know as much as Gary does, it gets a little complicated. Hey everyone, this is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method. And before we get into this week's question, I want to thank all of you for all the positive feedback on last week's show when we discussed uh, controlling your blood glucose levels and dealing with type 2 diabetes. Got a lot of good feedback also on the Primal Power Method Optimal Health Package. Um, between you guys and uh, my regular customers, you clean me out. So that product and a few others are sold out but I plan to have it restocked by Tuesday of next week. And uh, some of you had questions about timing, how many to take before or after meals, and I put together an instruction PDF that I'll be putting on my website. I'll be putting it in the product description and a few other places. So if you guys want, you can come back and download it, or feel free to email me, and I will send it to you. That is not a problem. Uh, to now to today's question, which is a great one on cheese, and that is, are you better off with raw, non-organic cheese or organic but pasteurized cheese? Boy, I wish that was a simple question, but it's a little more complicated. Um, I'm going to have to talk about pasteurization. Um, pasteurization is basically the heating of a food item in order to kill pathogens or harmful bacteria and it increases shelf life and that's primarily what we use it for today is to increase shelf life and also to kill all the horrible bacteria in our sick animals today as well but with that when you see something uh, a cheese product that's called raw technically it's not raw um usually this is where it gets a little tricky a lot of companies will put raw on the label because they do not fit the USDA guidelines for pasteurization. This is how it works, is that they use – in order for it to meet the guidelines, it has to be heated to 161 degrees or higher for 15 seconds or longer. Or in the, in the way of a fluid item, something that is a liquid, it must, it must meet that first criteria – or the second criteria, which is 145 degrees or higher for, or 145 degrees for 30 minutes or longer. Oh my God, I know. Government regulations, absolute confusion. That's how it goes. The actual 
145 degrees for 30 minutes is the better version of pasteurization. It actually kills less of the beneficial bacteria. And remember, we are 10 to 1 bacteria to cells. Without bacteria, the human organism ceases to exist. Uh, bacteria have many functions in our body. Three to four pounds is residing in your colon right now. So with that, that raw cheese was more than likely heated to around 150 to 158 degrees, but did not meet the threshold per the USDA guidelines. Um, so that means that they have to, by law, they have to put raw on the label, even though technically it is still a form to me, a form of pasteurization because you would never heat that product in nature for any reason to do that. So, and you have to check your cheese too, because some of it is made from raw milk, but is pasteurized, but will put raw on the label. You'll have to read it. It'll say made from raw milk, and you'll think it's raw organic cheese, and it's actually just derived from raw milk, but pa the cheese is pasteurized. Oh, boy. So now the organic but pasteurized cheese. So it depends on the pasteurization level too. So now if they use the flash pasteurization, which is the higher heat for a shorter period of time, that's not as good as what's called sub-pasteurization, which is the 145 degrees for 30 minutes. How are you going to find that out? Well, it's not going to be on the label, more than likely. Um, you're probably going to have to call the company. So to make this simple and to answer this question, what I would do is I would go with the – and what I do is go with the organic but pasteurized cheese if that is my only option. Or far as if I have to choose between the raw and a non-organic. And that's another tricky one too because it may not be organic because it could be a small mom and pop company that didn't have the ability to pay to get the USDA certification. But with the organic and pasteurized, the USDA certification is not perfect. I know Jack has talked about this. There's a lot of loopholes in that as well. So what is the best source? Well, the best source is from your local farmer. That's where you could get truly raw organic using organic processes because more than likely they do not have the funds to get USDA organic certified either. But you can go to the farm, you can talk to the farmer, you can take a farm tour or they'll maybe even show you how they make the cheese. I mean, that's a great way to find out and that's always the best way, you know, either make it yourself, raise your own crops or get it from someone else who uses the right practices. That simplifies everything. But to complicate it even more, is depending on what state you live in, raw, the selling of raw dairy could be illegal. So you can make it for your own consumption, but you can't sell it to a consumer. Oh boy, here we go. Just Gary, just whip it up into confusion. So with that, I'm going to make it even easier. I'm going to give you two really good recommendations that are two cheeses that are easy to find. The first one is called Sierra Nevada Cheese Company. They do have a raw organic cheese. And I did call them, I don't even remember, it must have been a year or two ago. So this could have changed. So you may have to do your own due diligence. I just didn't have time today. They closed before I could call them. They do have a raw organic cheese and it still was on the website and I've bought it in my grocery store. I think they heat it up to around 108. So technically it is raw because cheese to be made is heated up to 100 to 110 roughly to make cheese curds. Whether it's organic, raw, it does not matter. You have to heat it. 
in order to get cheese curds. So that's a good company, and they have several different cheeses, and it's usually easy to find in local healthy grocery stores. An easier one to find even is Kerrygold. Kerrygold is from grass-fed cows not given uh, bovine growth hormone or antibiotics, but it is pasteurized, but still a great product. Um, so with that, I'm giving you two good choices, but I would lean if you had to make a choice and you're in a store, I would go with organic pasteurized cheese because more than likely the raw non-organic is going to be pasteurized anyway. And the non-organic side is if it's in a main chain or mass distribution, that means it's probably coming from cows that the milk is pasteurized and they're fed GMO corn, GMO soy that's been coated with, you know, herbicides, pesticides, you know, put chemical laden fertilizer. So, I mean, you know, I think for me and the way I always lean is the organic, but pasteurized. I usually never have any problems with that type of cheese, but I stick to those two brands primarily. Um, if you have any questions, you can, uh, put it, uh, just put it in the comments of, uh, Jack's website, or you can hit me up at contact at primalpowermethod.com. Thanks a lot, guys. I have a few additions. Um, if you're if you're dealing with a locally produced product from local milk that's raw milk, because you live in a state that actually respects freedom, I would always personally take that product before an organic cheese product, raw or otherwise. Um, it is the case that a lot of local producers just don't bother to get tangled up in the whole is it or is it not organic. But the practices that they're using, even if they use some conventional feed here and there, are generally such that they're a lot better than even commercial organic, if you want to think about it that way. So the, really taking cheese out of the, the equation here and just looking at you know, where I get my food from, my first choice is a local product that I know uses all natural, not what the government means by that, but what we mean by that. If I have a local producer that I know is using no GMO and no soy for animals that shouldn't be eating it, uh, or product that animals shouldn't be passing soy estrogens through or what have you, but, you know, they say I'm using a feed that isn't 100% certified organic for supplemental feed, but they're on pasture. The way I take care of my ducks, I want that product first. The local produced product that's as natural as possible is what I want first. If I can't get it locally, but I can get, let's say I can't get it all natural, but I can still get it local produced, but it's someone that does something that I'd prefer they not do, but it's not that big a deal. Let's say I have a person that's locally producing tomatoes, and they said, yeah, I use conventional fertilizer. I'm probably still going to buy that. As long as they're not spraying it with 7-Dust or something like that, I'm probably going to want that product before I want commercial organic. Now I have to go the commercial route. Okay? Now I'm going to go, I'm going to turn to organic at the point that I have to walk into a store and buy something that comes from a person that I don't know. That, that's, that's where I turn that corner with just about anything. If you're buying a locally produced raw, raw milk cheese that's made with real raw milk, Gary kind of talked about how you can finagle that there. Raw milk, making raw milk cheese from a local producer, just because it's not organic does not mean 
anything about really how that animal's treated. It doesn't mean that they're being pumped up with RGBH. Now you can, the thing is, if it's local, you can research that. And, and the question to ask isn't are you or not, are you not organic? It is, are you feeding your cows GMO feed that's laced with glyphosate that's passing through to the milk? Uh, and are you using the, this, this growth hormone crap? The answer to both of those questions is no. That product's probably better than anything you're going to ever get on the shelves. Another option. In Europe, raw milk is legal, period. Okay, It has its own set of standards, and there's things that have to be done and what have you, but it is not illegal to sell raw milk in the European Union at all. Some of the best cheeses in the world come from Italy. They come from France. They come from, from, from Denmark, uh, Sweden, Switzerland, England, Ireland. Now, they're not technically EU, but it's part of Europe. All of those nations make outstanding cheeses. And if you're buying a product that comes from there, and I want to buy local, but you can find a lot of products that come from overseas that are non-GMO because, well, they're not real hip on that over there, are they? So, for instance, we buy a half a wheel at a time of Leiden that's made, you know, in, in Holland, right? And, and it's wonderful cheese. And I don't know if it's raw milk. But I, I am much more comfortable eating that product than I am, you know, a product made by Kraft. And, and, I, and I know it's GMO-free because they don't do that there. That's my thoughts on that one. Let's move on to the next one. Um, this is for Ben Falk. Real quick, simple question for Ben. And Ben is the man on this because he's planted like thousands of these things in the last few years. Ben, what is the recommended way to sustainably harvest black locust wood for heat? Thanks, Eric. Details on this. They live in southern Michigan, almost identical climate to Ben. Winter lows bottom at negative 20. Have 40 acres of old growth forest with less than one acre cleared using an existing hydronic outside wood boiler to heat several houses, barns, and other outbuildings. Uh, I'm using 15 to 30 cords of wood uh, per year. We have five to ten years of dead fallen wood available. At least 10 years of easily felled trees. I want to start planting trees to plant for when I need to start harvesting in 15 years. What species, spacing, and practices would you recommend to sustainably har harvest 30 cords of wood per year with 15 to 20 years of prep time when starting, in old, starting with old growth forest? Uh, what say you on that one, Ben? Hi, Jack and all. Ben Falk with Whole Systems Design. Uh, 15 to 30 cords an acre. Um, uh, excuse me, 15 to 30 cords a year is a ton of wood. Um, that's about as much as you're going to get off of 40 acres, you know, maybe a little more in general in the northern hardwood forest. A good rule of thumb is if it's mature forest, you can basically get an acre of uh, a cord, excuse me, per acre, cord per acre per year perpetually in the northern hardwood forest if it's mature woods. I think that's a pretty reasonable number. Um, I think, you know, the goal that one of the goals we've been working with is to up that to maybe two or three cords an acre with things like fast cycling carbon pathways like um, black locust. The challenge that you're bringing up is not just a, a high need for cordwood um, and a relatively small land base to do it from, but more so that you said you have that your whole landscape is old growth forest except for one acre. If what you mean by old growth forest is what um, I think a lot of folks mean is that's original growth, 
I would recommend you don't do anything with it because you're on like less than half a percent of what remains of original growth forest in the country um, or even less. So that's a good thing to actually truly preserve and not really cut old growth trees down. If what you mean is it hasn't been cut in a while, um, then selective thinning um, and potentially even patch cutting would be your best option. There's a lot of it depends here um, in terms of your silvicultural approaches. But essentially, your fastest way, if you want to plant black locust, is to have degraded land nearby you and plant black locust at, you know, two to four foot centers um, and then coppice or pollard them. We do both, and uh, we're only about eight years into it, so I can't tell you over the long haul what's going to be best for – I'm sure they both have their applications. We, we pollard them at about uh, – one well coppice them about half a foot above the ground or right close to the ground for laying them as as hedges and fences um but for strictly just a firewood yield where you don't need fences you may approach it differently the long short of it is black locust is probably your fastest way to get cordwood per acre or maybe osage orange you're in a bit of a warmer climate than we are osage might work um but you need clear, you know, fully full sun access to do that, and you can do that on very degraded land. I certainly would cut, would cut down uh, old growth or even very mature forest to do that. If you can cut your your load of cordwood down from fifteen to thirty cords to like five or ten, you'll get ahead much more quickly as well. Good luck to you. I have a few things I'll add to that. Number one, when, when I see somebody saying they're using fifteen to thirty cords of wood a year. What that tells me is that they're really not sure because basically it you, your low is half of your high, which means you're kind of guessing, I would, I would imagine, um, because that variability is 100%. So if you told me you're using 15 to 20, well, a warm year you might use 15, warm year for you, and a, a cold year you might use 20. Uh, unless you have some really variable things in production that go on there, it seems like you're not sure, and that means your efficiencies are probably not worked out. So what Ben was finishing on there is how do we reduce the amount that we're using there? And when I look at you know a wood boiler to heat several houses, barns, and other outbuildings, it may be an efficiency issue. There may be some ways to really up the efficiencies of the fuel usage through things like possibly rocket stoves and thermal mass and things like that. So I'm not saying you can. I'm not saying it's a definite. I'm not saying you're being wasteful. I'm saying that is the first place to start making consideration, and here's why. You say that you have five to ten years of dead fallen wood available. Well, ten is a lot different than five. It's, so I, I do think you're, you're, you're trying to be accurate because your amount of time you have left is exactly a correlation to how much you use. Five to ten, exactly double. So if we can get the efficiencies up, we're looking a lot more like ten than five. Right. The longer we stave this off, the more time we have to do things to make things sustainably harvestable. I agree with your choice and Ben's recommendation that you continue with your choice on black locust for if you want cordwood and you're going to plant a new tree, what do you plant? And I think that's definitely a good answer. I think another thing to start looking at as you're removing some trees, the thing with when you say old growth, I'm going to bet 
it was the second thing Ben said, not the first. I don't think you're sitting on 300-year-old primeval forest or you wouldn't even be asking the question. I think when you say old, you mean 15, 20, 30-year regrowth. When forests grow naturally like that, the reason timber companies like them is they grow so dense you get really straight, long, tall trees without a lot of branches. But as you're clearing places, you'll find glades and places where trees have more branched out, more, more like they do in suburban environments. And it's a good idea to figure out, well, what trees can I retain that I can pollard, which is coppicing higher up, right? It could be head height, could be, you know, 10 feet up in there, depending on the tree and what you have to do it with, where I can leave some trees that are also trees that can be coppiced or pollarded. So you might have some stuff in there that lends itself to that. So those trees don't have to be established. They just have to be maintained. So that that's another thing to look at, I guess, there. And then start thinking about doing what Ben's done, which is Ben has some patches of locusts that he's put in specifically to answer questions like this, to do research, put a, a half acre of locust here, and what comes out of it, and how, how we can put it back. And then he's got stuff that he's put in for fencing, but he's pretty much ringed his entire property. And when you start looking at the the linear feet of ringing property, the amount of trees that can be planted there is pretty outstanding. Uh, they always can be felled low and tipped over. You know, uh, you, what you can do with a locust is you get you 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 coppice it, which is where you cut it down near the ground, and you get a whip that comes up real quick, fast growing whip. And we take that whip when it's about three or four foot high, and we bend it over and hold it down to the ground with a rock, and it'll start rooting, and it'll start shooting more right up out of it, like lateral branches, and we can end up with a hedgerow of locusts. And I don't know if you've looked at black locusts, but getting through that sucks. So we can actually maintain a hedgerow of locusts, and then we can just cut off the top as, as a fuel wood. That's another way we can use that. But even if we don't want to go through all that, if we just go out and put locusts all the way around our property... What is the value of that not having to put fence posts in and never having to put a fence post again while any person that's currently alive is still alive? We poller those up at head height, and we do them in segments, but we have standing timber that we can stick insulators in, and we can run electrical fencing 100% of the way around our property. And if we start running cross-fencing things with that, we could just have that serve multiple functions, and maybe it doesn't provide you know, your 15 cords or your 20 cords that you need of, of it. But if it provides 10 and you're able to start sourcing some other things and managing other things, it, you, you can probably get where you need to be with your property with not necessarily getting it all from new trees is what I'm getting at. So hopefully that helps you think. you got to think broader on this. Um, I just see, you know, when you're looking at, uh, this much land, 40 acres of land, having it simply be your source of, uh, of heat, uh, seems like we're not doing enough with it. We need to think a little bit more broadly. And we could probably, if we had a design, uh, for your, your, your place, you know, your place in front of us, we could probably make a whole show just out of what could be done with that 40 acres to provide the fuel and maybe not provide all the heat, uh, for your property from Wood. There may be other ways that we can supplement that. Uh, with that, I'm up to our last question today. This one for Chef Keith Snow. This one is uh, one I think a lot of you are going to enjoy because it has to do with one of my favorite things to eat, lamb. This question comes from Wade, and it says, I just purchased a lamb from a local producer. 
had it custom butchered, would like some tips and procedures preparing lamb meat. I have lamb chops, leg of lamb burger, and four large roasts. Thanks, Wade. So, Chef Keith, make everybody hungry, bro. Hey, it's Chef Keith Snow from HarvestEating.com. I wanted to answer Wade's question about using up some lamb. Now, lamb rocks. It's definitely underused in this country compared to things like beef, um, but a good cut of lamb cooked properly is the bomb. So let's uh, let's tackle Wade's things here in order. I don't know if I'll get to all of them. Uh, speaking of which, we're going to start the stopwatch. How about that? There we go. Okay, so lamb chops being probably uh, one of the most popular cuts. This is what you need to do. Take a little teeny sauce pot, small one. Put in, uh, let's say, I don't know, three or four tablespoons of good quality olive oil. Then you're going to put in three cloves of sliced garlic. And you're going to put in the zest, meaning the outside of one beautiful orange. Try not to get too much of the white pith that's underneath tends to be bitter. Also, a large twist of your rose, excuse me, of your thyme bush. Take that. No, did I say thyme? I meant oregano. Your oregano bush, twist it off, um, pluck some of the leaves, chop them up, and throw them into this oil. Now, do not leave this. Bring it up to temperature slowly. You do not want it hot because if you toast the garlic, if it turns brown, all of a sudden you're going to have a completely different flavor than I'm intending you to have. So this needs to be a slow little bubble. You're just infusing the oil with your oregano, your garlic, and that beautiful orange zest. Now, this is going to smell pretty darn great. So after it bubbles about six, eight minutes, take it off the heat, and you're going to add in about a half a teaspoon of kosher salt. Now, take your uh, lamb chops that have come up to room temperature before you grill them and pour this uh, marinade all over them, pressing it in, making sure they're good and wet, and leave them to marinade, you know, 35, 40 minutes, something like that. Then... Proceed to grill them on your favorite grilling implement. Make sure it's good and hot, clean, and rubbed with a little bit of oil. That way there's no, um, you'd be surprised. I go to some people's houses and these things that they grill on, there's so much burned on food and they'll put like the new food right on top of the nasty old burned on food. Let's not do that, folks. So clean the grill. And um, do these chops, turning them a quarter turn after two or three minutes, flip them over, cook them to your likeness. And those are amazing. Now, if you want to make it even extra special, over at HarvestEating.com is a recipe for a spicy tomato peach jam. Now, this is easy to make, folks. As I record this, we're in the middle of August. There's plenty of tomatoes and peaches available. And if it's not the middle of August when you're listening to this five years from now, no problem. Take out some canned tomatoes and peaches that you put up or buy some um, good quality canned tomatoes and frozen peaches, and you can make the same dish. But anyway, the recipe is over at harvesting.com. It's a spicy tomato peach jam. will taste delicious on these wonderful lamb chops. Next up, let's talk about that leg of lamb. Now, I absolutely love leg of lamb. I actually don't have it very often, oddly enough. My wife loves it. I should get into it a little more. Um, but when I was in uh, Lyon, France, way back when, I had a leg of lamb at the restaurant Tomas. This is a little independently run place with a great chef. And man, he put out a leg of lamb that is to die for. I still remember each and every bite of it today. And folks, that is one of the best ways 
to celebrate things with your family is through good food. The memories linger on and on and on and creating a terrific kind of culinary repertoire for your family to enjoy is uh, something special. I always kind of celebrate my mom and my mother-in-law through their food. So cook with your children, people. Now let's get to this leg of lamb. Here's what you need to do. Take out the leg of lamb. Um, hopefully Wade, that this Wade is the dude that called in the question for those of you that missed that. Maybe I forgot to say it. I don't know. But you want to try to get the leg of lamb with the bone in. So the shank in. And uh, that's the way I would prefer to do this. Now you're going to make a paste. And this is simple stuff making this paste. Again, a quarter cup of good quality olive oil. One teaspoon. Now that's a lot. Just don't don't worry. One teaspoon of cinnamon, good quality cinnamon. Next up, you're going to take your spice grinder and, or your mortar and pestle. Have them on the side. Now, heat up a dry skillet. You're going to put in two tablespoons of coriander seed. That is the seed of the cilantro plant. You guys know when you try to grow cilantro, at least in my world, you get a few leaves on the bottom, never looks like the stuff in the store, and then it it bolts. It, it'll grow straight up, and if you leave it, it'll have these little round little balls on there. Those are your coriander seeds, and those are incredible. So if your cilantro bolts on it, don't worry. Just let it mature out and take those seeds off. Now, um, you're going to probably be buying these coriander seeds in a store. So you take those along with one teaspoon of um, fennel seed. So fennel seed, coriander seed, go into the skillet and just with constant movement, no oil, no nothing, dry skillet, move it around. I wouldn't want to use a uh, non-stick here, something like a cast iron or, or stainless steel. Move them around. They're going to jump around. When you start to smell a little bit of in the air, it's time to take them off. Now, that's a fine point from starting to smell fragrance to burning those spices. If you burn them, Game over. you got to start again. So just a slight little fragrance thing coming off. Then they need to come out of that pan because they will continue to cook in that pan even if it's off the heat. Once they're cooled in the spice grinder or in your uh, mortar, you bash them up into a powder. It goes with the cinnamon in the oil. You're going to put in one teaspoon of Worcestershire sauce and a big handful of fresh thyme. Just chop that thyme up. Don't worry if you bruise it. Throw it into this paste, mix it all up together. One teaspoon of kosher salt. Take your leg of lamb and give it a good massage all over the place, in and out, everywhere. Get this flavored paste oil thingy all over this thing. Turn your oven on to about 375. Now, once this meat has marinated with the paste on it at room temperature, don't put it back in the fridge, at room temperature, one hour, so it's all it's going to need, put it into the oven, and you're going to give it 20 minutes at 375. Then you're going to turn that, just set an alarm, 20 minutes, 375, turn your oven all the way down to 325. Then you're going to cook it to your level of desired doneness. Now, this is something I can't tell you. A lot of people, well, how long do I cook it at 325? I have no idea because I don't know how big this leg of lamb is. I don't know where you put it in the oven, top, bottom, middle. I don't know if your oven's actually at 325, whether it's calibrated properly. It could say 375, and maybe you think it's 325. So I don't know all those things. That's for you to know. The, re, the, the way you make sure it's not overcooked is by using a properly calibrated thermometer. For a video on that, visit 
harvesteating.com or go to my YouTube page. Just search uh, Chef Keith Snow Calibrate Thermometer on YouTube. Short little video will come up and show you how to calibrate a little stick thermometer with some ice cubes. Very simple technique. That way you don't butcher or burn or undercook badly a piece of delicious lamb. Make sure it's cooked to your likeness. For me, it's 135 degrees. I pull it out. So I'll put in a probe thermometer that has a wire that comes out of the oven, attaches to a little digital readout. When it comes to 135, out it comes. I cover it up, let it rest a bit, and carve it, and it's beautiful. If you like it a lot more rare, then you want to take it out sooner. If you want it to be not pink, you're going to look more towards 150, 155, something like that. But remember, lamb is very tender. Um, you don't want to overcook it, in my opinion. So those are a couple ways to get started. You also have some lamb burger, um, lamb, ground lamb with spices and seasonings stuffed into some real casings. Make unbelievable sausage, um, grilled lamb sausage, money. Absolutely love it. Um, next up, I wanted to give everybody a, uh, a shout out. Thank you so much for all of you that have come over to the Harvest Eating website and purchased the thoughtful Harvest Pasta sauces that are now in stock on our site. Just a quick note for those of you that still want the Amazon coupon, and I've received tons and tons of your responses. Uh, most of you have already received a, a quick response back from me saying that the coupon will be forwarded to you once it's generated within the Amazon platform. Um, the, sh- the sauces will be shipping over to them in a couple of days. They have a lot of policies and procedures. And as a little player like me, I want to make sure they're all met properly before I ship my valuable inventory over. Because if it's not packaged properly, sometimes I hear stories that they'll destroy your inventory. We can't have that. So a couple of days to make sure everything is right. It'll be over there. And you'll have an email coming from me with that coupon. For those of you that still want to get on a list, just call me. Or email me, keithharvesteating.com. Greatly appreciate everybody's support. And I hope when you try the sauce off Amazon, you're willing to leave me an honest review. Because that's the game over there is getting reviews. Um, but for those of you that just can't wait, and a lot of you have not been able to wait, uh, you can go to harvesteating.com. We are shipping it out. A bunch of it's going out today to people who have ordered it online. Um, it's now packed in a um, awesome BPA-free stand-up pouch, which is totally flexible. It's a great new way to package the sauces. Super happy with the way it turned out. Those of you that are RVers, this is great stuff to have in your RV pantry. Parents, if you're going to send your kids off to college, boy, that'll be a sad day for me. But if you're going to do that, you can send them you know, a six-pack of these sauces. It's, again, flexible and it can go right into their dorm room. They just rip the pouch, heat it up, or they can even boil the bag. But that's it, folks. Take care, everyone. Have a great weekend. Well, I'm hungry, and I'll throw in that my uh, show on cooking deer meat this week is also something those of you looking for different things to do with lamb can uh, can kind of dig into uh, because all the stuff I said to do with deer, lamb works as a great analog for, especially you guys that like you want to try some of those things and you just don't have access to venison, I would tell you that always look at lamb like it would be just wonderful if deer had more fat in their in their muscle and what have you, and that's what lamb gives you. It gives you basically a fatty venison. Uh, the, the, they're not the same meat, but they are the closest. The lamb is the closest thing to venison that I've ever eaten, you know, that you can buy in a market or what have you. Anyway, with that, um, I did want to kind of, 
throw a little thing in here at the end. Chef Keith actually punted a question this week, which is something that he doesn't do very often, but it was a challenging one. Uh, the one I had, I had chosen for him was a person asking what to do with prickly pear uh, cactus fruits. And uh, he said, and they said they didn't want to do jelly or a sauce, which was or juice, which is like Keith's like that's that's what I know to do with them. Um, I don't have a lot to add, but I will tell you there is one wonderful thing you can do with prickly pear uh, cactus fruits. It makes some of the most incredible mead. Uh, a prickly pear cactus fruit mead is one of the most seductively wonderful things uh, that I've ever experienced. And we have one of the fathers of home brewing and home venting, Charlie Papazian, to thank for it. It's in his, uh, his original home brewing book, which is where I recommend everybody start. Um, with home brewing, if you need a book uh, to walk you through the procedures and recipes and all. There's a lot of things available now in home brewing that are a little more advanced than when, when that book was made, but the, the book is the book. It is the Bible to me for the new home brewer that's never made a beer in his life or never made a meat in his life and wants to try it. If you follow that, you'll follow in the footsteps of, of, of probably tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of us who have started right there. And I found this recipe, and I haven't made it in a long time. And right now, we have a lot of this stuff fruiting around here. And I need there's a little park just across the highway, on the other side of the highway, heading toward Fort Worth, where there's loads of it. I should get down there and make some of this, because it'll be a year or more before it's drinkable. And uh, the opportunity to get these things is an, an, an annual event for those that live in the Southwest. Um, but I'm not going to go through the recipe on the air except to tell you it's a very high-gravity mead, uh, 20 pounds of honey to a five-gallon batch. Uh, and it uses a, a, about five to six pounds of, uh, of cactus fruit uh, to make it. And Charlie talks about getting it unstuck if it's stuck, and I have one little advice that I'll add on to the recipe here. What I found when making this mead to make sure you get a really good full fermentation is... When you rack it to the secondary fermenter, and if you don't know what that means, you can learn if you want to learn how to, how to do this. But when you take it and rack it to the secondary, at that time, uh, brew up a fresh culture with a, a starter culture of a high-gravity yeast like a champagne yeast. Uh, so give it a little bit of, uh, of fuel and multiply it for a couple days, and re-pitch yeast at the time you go to your secondary, and then rack off to a, a tertiary, a third level, uh, and let it clear, because it gets really hazy the way you have to do this. It takes about a year in the fermenter to come out the way you want it. Keep an eye on the airlock. But this is one of those things, when you make it, you don't bring it out at a party and get everybody drunk on it. This is to be savored. Um, and if I had the discipline, I'd make a batch every year, and I'd have the ability to sit down and drink some at six years old, five years old, four years old, et cetera, and compare it. I would actually recommend that this be bottled in smaller bottles so that it can be sampled in smaller amounts. It's it's that fabulous. So wanted to throw that in there for you. And I have a link to Charlie's original recipe and commentary straight out of his book, The Home Brewer's Companion, uh, online so you can, uh, you can really uh, try to do this if you want to and you want to know what to do with this just abundant resource that usually you just go out and pick. Little piece of advice, wear thick leather gloves when you do this or use tongs to pick the fruits because while the super ripe fruits and what you're looking for, if you, if you ever want to use prickly pear fruits, when they get almost black, when they're almost ready to fall off, 
they have almost no thorns, sometimes zero thorns left on them. And that's because they've done their job and they're ready to be eaten, right? The thorns have done their job. They now want an animal to eat it and transport the seed somewhere else. So they kind of shed their, their, their spines. But when they're ripe enough to use, but not quite ready for that to happen, the, a lot of those little hair thorns are on there. And those things are sharp, and you don't feel them when they go in, but you sure as hell feel them once they're in, and trying to get them out is a nightmare. So don't get yourself full of those little hairy thorns, and never stick one in your mouth unless you're sure you've gotten all the thorns off it. Uh, a lot of times when we're hiking, I will pick one, being very careful, and use a knife to knock all the thorns off it and then eat the outside part of it because I kind of like it, uh, just fresh like that. But if you get one of those thorns in your lip or your tongue, you're going to be a miserable, miserable person. Hold on right there. got a little catch in my throat. But I, I want to finish up now with what I promised you, a little bit of motivation for the weekend here on doing something for yourself whether it's building a business, building a homestead, getting out of debt, uh, developing skill sets, whatever it is. Man, I, what I would like to suggest to those of you who have been on the fence with, I need to do something, but I don't know what, don't take this weekend to do it. Take this weekend to decide you're going to do it and figure out what it is. And I think that one of the biggest problems that people have when they're thinking about a business or a homestead or the next project or getting out of debt is they think, well, I got to... I got to do it right the first time. I got to do it right. I got to. I got to make sure I pick the right product. I got to make sure I pick the right way to structure what I'm doing. I got to make sure I plant that tree in the exact right spot, or whatever. And there's no room for perfectionism in the establishment of an enterprise. Okay, there's room to try to create perfection after establishment and, and momentum is, is on the way and you get things working and you start to refine. No matter what you do, you will screw up a new business in the beginning. You will not do it right, even if you've built a 100 businesses before. In fact, I think one of the biggest reasons that people that have monumentous success with a business, and I mean big time, like people that build, you know, some of the people that built some of the big dot-coms that are still around uh, and what have you, that went out and made millions of dollars, when they tried to do it again, they failed is because they weren't willing to accept failure the second time around. It was too easy. Everybody just said, sure, I mean, I'll give you some money. I'll help you out with that. Or they had their own money. They, you know, the guy makes $30 million on some kind of venture and puts $25 million away, takes $5 million for seed capital. He started out with 50 bucks the first time, and he takes that $5 million and goes and creates a new company, and it just doesn't, it doesn't have the magic because he wasn't willing to fail. Or it was too easy to fail is the other thing. You know, they start hiring staff right away instead of, like, bootstrapping it and doing it all themselves. Right, and really pouring their passion into it because I got $25 million in the bank or whatever. I don't really need to anymore. But whether it's your third business, your 30th business, or your first business, the key is going to be work ethic, passion, and hustle and pouring your heart, your guts, and your soul into it. When it comes to getting out of debt, it's, it's scary as shit when you sit back and realize, well, I got my first job out of college. I make $35,000 a year. I can barely live on that. I'm eating freaking peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and ramen noodles, even though it's not good for me because it's what I can afford. And I got $80,000 in freaking debt now. What the hell do I do? But it starts out with saying, this is this one thing that I can do. I can take the smallest debt, and I can take this little bit of surplus, I can go deliver pizzas if I have to, and I can take 100% of my pizza money and put it on that smallest debt until that smallest debt's gone. And then I can pour that onto the next one. You start with what you can do. 
and you might find out you hate delivering pizzas and it's not worth doing and you don't make enough money for it to make a big dent. You got to find something else out, but you do what you can with what you have and get freaking started. Okay? That there's so many people out there that are so talented and so gifted. They have so much potential. They have so much opportunity in front of them, but they just don't know where to start. Freaking start! Do something. Do anything. Pick something. Run with it. Go with it. Make it your own. Kick life's ass. Quit waiting for something to show up. People say, I'm looking for an opportunity. I'm looking for an opportunity. There's opportunities everywhere. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of opportunities. Your challenge isn't to find an opportunity. Your challenge is to find an opportunity among so many opportunities you don't know which one to pick. So pick one. If you go, I get, this is the one I get people all the time. Well, I have like four really great ideas, and they're all awesome. They all could really, really go somewhere, and I don't know what one to pick. You know what? If that's true, If they're all that great, then what you do is write each one down on four sheets of notebook paper and, and stick them on a wall. Go back about as far as you can reasonably throw a dart and hurl a dart like a freaking football at the wall and whichever one the dart is closest to, shut up about the other three and get on that one. Or stop bullshitting yourself and realize there's one of them you really, really want to do. And you're making the other three an excuse. Never put the paper up. Ignore those other three and do that one. Or when you're saying, well, I don't have enough money. That's why you're doing this. People that are rich as shit don't go start businesses from the bottom up. They buy businesses. They hire people to establish businesses. They do things you know, for the purpose of creating opportunity for others and because they have a meaningful impact they're trying to create on the world or they want to see something come to reality or whatever it is. People that actually build businesses from the ground up, from the basement up, that, that, ha that, that get up at 5 o'clock in the morning while everybody else is asleep, people that do that, they're doing it because they're broke. They're doing it because they don't have any time. That's why you get up at 4.30 in the morning, because I don't have any other time to work. People that pay off debt and, and don't end up 50 years old in more debt than they started out with are people that make sacrifices because they're sick of the debt, because they don't have a lot of income. They aren't fooling themselves to believe that they can handle it. People that go out and say, the hell with working for a living this way. I don't really want a business of my own, but take the contracting route and start figuring out. I can take three clients. I can do this. I can have this flexibility. I can work really heavy during these months when there's a big call for my services, make extra money. I can work 60, 70 hours a week for three months out of the year, and then I can coast for 20 to 30 hours the rest, and I can figure out all the rest of these things, and I can start building the life of my dreams and the flexibility because they're sick of where they're at. The biggest reason people don't get off their ass and claim life is because they're too freaking comfortable where they are. Even if that comfort equates to misery. It's comfortable misery. It's safe. It's simple. Wham. Do you want it or not? Do you want it or not? Do you want to be 20 years from now pretty much where you are now? If you do, great. Forget it. Turn off the rest of the show. You're happy. Good for you. And I don't say that facetiously. I mean it. If you really can say to yourself, if I'm exactly kind of in the same place I am now, 20 years from now, 
I'll be totally cool with it. I'll be older. I'll have enough money for retirement, whatever it is. But basically, this is what I want. Great. It's not worth the effort then. But if, if you think of yourself being where you are now in 20 years and it makes you sick or it scares you or it freaks you out or you're thinking, oh, God, no, not that, anything but that, get up and kick life's ass today. Think about it this weekend. Think of one thing you can do to move your life forward and do it. One, not two, not three, not 17. One. People that I read the letter to you today said, you know what we can do? We can make soap. We can make soap. You can learn to do that in a weekend, by the way. You can get good at it in a couple months, probably. They make a really beautiful product, by the way. It's awesome looking. It's not just a good smelling product. It's beautiful. It looks cool. It looks like something when you go to a bed and breakfast and they say, here's your custom soap and your little, you don't even use it. You take it home and you show it to people, right? They learned how to do that. They have a business started. Now, you think they're going to make their entire business based on soap? I don't think so, based on a letter. They're going to do other things. That's the start. And yes, once you get a customer base, then you can start pouring other products that are comparable, that fit that, into that product stream. But you know what? So what? First, you got to do one thing. First, you, that's if you, especially if you're the kind of person like these people that are saying, like, I still have a day job. I'm going to bust my ass on mornings, nights, and weekends, and I'm going to make this shit happen. You only got time to do one thing because you got to do it really, really well, and you got to screw it up before you do it well. The, here's here's the here's the fundamental fact of reality: there is no success without failure. You will never succeed in doing anything without first failing when you try to do it. And if you're afraid of failure, failure, I got bad news for you. Tough shit. Tough shit. I don't care that you're afraid of failure. Get over it or just sit there and do nothing. Those are your choices in life. You either get over your fear of failure, get out and fail your ass off, fail your ass off and you'll start falling into success. And then you'll get really good. So good, so fast, it'll scare you when you really look back and think about it. Or you can sit there and whine and bitch and cry and talk about what you're going to do someday. You can be like my grandfather in his later years. One of these days, I'm going to go out to the river and go fishing again. Grandpa, you've been saying that for five years. Well, the best time to go fishing is after a good early frost, and we ain't had one yet, and the frost never came, and the man never fished again a day in his life. Don't be like my grandfather. Don't be like my grandfather. Stop waiting. This world is full of opportunity. If you live in the United States, where most of you guys live, the opportunity here is greater than anywhere else in the world. We have our problems, but when somebody wants to build something from the ground up, this is where they come to build it. When they get really successful, they might outsource things and move overseas and whatever, but when they want to start with nothing and make something, they still want to come here because we can do it. And the world is changing. The world is changing. The discrepancy between the haves and the have-nots is never going to go away, and it will get worse, and it will widen. And the haves in the future are going to be those that write their own destiny, that control their own destiny. The Survival Podcast is about surviving, and that means adaptation to a new reality. 
And the new reality is the people that can carve out something, that can create opportunity for themselves, that it can expand that opportunity, those are the ones that are going to prosper. I want that for every single one of you. Keep the letters coming. Keep the stories coming. Don't bother telling me what you're going to do. Go do something, even something little, and tell me what you did. That gets me excited. The world is full of people that are going to do something someday whenever their ship comes in. Your ship ain't coming in. It's sunk on a barrier reef. It's never showing up. Cut a freaking tree down and build a freaking rowboat and take your ass to sea and make something happen. That's my words of advice for you this weekend. Stop living in the future and start building the future in the now. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution is you